Joe and welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WZWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California Imperial. What a joy to be with you all once again. And this is a joy for me right here, right now, because, you know, when I first started this podcast, I would write down a whole heap of names that I, I definitely wanted to get on the show one day. And I finally got this guy right here, right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the one. This is the only. This is Mr. Michael Modest. How are you, sir? Hey, how you doing, Carl? Thank you I for having me great. on the show, man. Hey, um, no problem. Uh, uh, the thank yous go all to you to have you on the show. It's definitely fantastic for me. Uh, and Mike, the first question, as per usual on this show, I'm sure you've been asked it a million times. How did you become a fan of pro wrestling before you got in the business? Yeah, um, when I was a kid my uncle would come over and my mom and dad, they never watched it, but my uncle would come over and, and uh, he'd go, Hey man, come on, let's, let's go watch wrestling. And we'd go in the other room and watch wrestling with my cousins. And, and, uh, and then whenever I'd go over to my uncle's house, my uncle Rocco, uh, you know, we'd always watch, watch wrestling. And um, so that, that's when it started. I was, I, gosh, I don't know, probably four years old, five years old, somewhere around there. Excellent, excellent. And I guess uh, because of those times, uh, the bug may have bit you like it bit many other people and it stays with you through your teenagers, I'm assuming. Uh, does it get to a point where you get into your teens or your early 20s and you start to think to yourself, I've got to, I have to try this out. I have to do this. Uh, and how do you go about trying to get into the business? Well, you know, so yeah, of course it followed me all through my teenage years and everything. And, and I, I, I was, uh, I had the pleasure of every, you know, Saturday or every other Saturday, I would head over to the liquor store with my buddies and we would go try to see, you know, the new, uh, pro wrestling insider or, or, uh, pro wrestling illustrated, you know, magazine. And, um, that was the only way because there was no internet. So we, we didn't, we didn't get to see guys that were wrestling in Florida and wrestling in Georgia and rest, you know, we would hear about it through the magazines, uh, you know, but uh, there was no other way to find out. So the magazines were a big thing and they were kind of like a treasure, you know, like it was a man. I had a, I had a whole big uh, box of, of, these uh magazines you know and now everything everything is so easily gotten to which is which is cool um but at the same time you take it for granted a little bit you know you don't have that because man it was a big thing it was it was really exciting to wake up saturday morning you know eat some cereal watch a few cartoons and jump on the bikes and head on over to 7-eleven or or the, you know, and we, we'd hit all the, the liquor stores too. We'd hit 7-Eleven and, and, you know, places down the road, like mom and pop stores. And, 
we made the rounds to make sure that, you know, we, we got the, all of the <laughs> magazines that were out there, you know? And, uh, so it was, it was really a, a special kind of time to be a wrestling fan in a way. And then in a way now it's, it's even better because you get to see these guys actually wrestle. You can, the independent scene has blown up because people through the internet are able to see guys that are just fledgling, you know, talent, just, just getting out there, you know? And, uh, so it's, there's an explosion, um, of independent wrestling, uh, happening all over the country. So it's kind of a neat thing to see as well. Yeah, definitely. There was definitely a charm to, I mean, uh, I became a fan in, in the late 90s, but it was still kind of like that. There was a charm to being a fan back then where it was about the magazines and getting the tape trading and all that stuff. And, right. And, and <laughs> the, the, I don't know, something exciting about waiting like eight weeks for a tape to come from the United States to here in Australia. You'd be so excited yeah. by the time you got that tape and you'd wear that thing out. <laughs> uh, right. But, <clears throat> uh, but yeah. You know, it was and I know I'm, I'm probably getting way off. I know you have other questions and stuff, but that's exactly how I became such a fan of all Japan wrestling was, was through VHS tapes. And I would, I would watch guys like Kobashi and Misawa and uh, Akiyama. And, and I was just mesmerized by their talent. I mean, these guys brought sport to it, man. It, it wasn't all about entertainment. It was, it was such a sport to them and they fought so hard, you know, and, and it was just, uh, yeah. So I, I've been a wrestling fan ever since I can remember. I still am. Uh, however, I rarely watch the, the current product. Um, usually I, I watch you know, stuff on YouTube and, uh, Usually I'm going back to old stuff and I always trip on, I can go back and watch old matches and I can pull one or two, three, one, one to three things out of every match that I could use right now that would kind of be new, you know, and, and sometimes it's just the way you sell something or, or whatever, but uh, I, I, I love watching some of the older stuff where, it's more organic and less contrived. Yeah, that's such a great point because uh, that's what I think when I watch that older stuff as well. I, 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 I get so into it, and 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 I can't see anybody cooperating with one another. It, it feels more real, uh, especially um, some of the Japanese stuff. Um, right. But um, <clears throat> as we were talking about the the magazines uh, and you getting a little bit older, um, was that where maybe the back of the magazine, I believe there would be advertisements for places to get trained. How do you find your way to get trained and, and get into the wrestling business? Well, you know, um, actually there, that didn't even happen. Um, at the, at, when I was a kid, there was nothing in the magazines that told you where to go get trained or anything like that. Uh, what happened with me was a group of, of uh kids basically we all got together there was this thing called the the teen committee that was done in the city i was growing up in called vacaville and uh so the teen committee you know we we approached them about doing like a wrestling show you know and they agreed and 
they even came up with a budget to rent a ring, you know? So we started trying to figure out where to rent a ring. And we found a guy named Jerry Monty, who I was already familiar with. He was a WWF jobber. Um, I pref- I've always preferred the term jobber over enhancement talent. Uh, enhancement talent sounds like something that anyone can do. Uh, jobber is at least a title. You know, it's like journeyman, you know, uh, <laughs> when you're a carpenter, you know, you're a journeyman, you know, and, you know, you get different titles, you become a master carpenter or whatever. But uh, I, always, I, I now apparently that is uh, not acceptable because it hurts people's feelings. So we're in a very touchy-feely kind of uh, era right now. So (laughs) I grew up, we were, we were a lot tougher. Um, We didn't, we didn't have delicate feelings like that. I mean, maybe some of us did, but I didn't, you know, like that. So, uh, but we found Jerry Monty and went down there and, and talked to Jerry. The first time I ever got into a professional wrestling ring was at Jerry's and he had he had this little spot in the back of a uh, world's gym and the ring was surrounded by walls on three sides. So you couldn't go to the floor on three sides of the ring. It was such a small place and uh, you could only go out on one side. And, uh, but I got in there cause I, I, I watched a couple of wrestlers bump around and I watched a guy take a backdrop. And uh, so I got in there and I, I just kind of took a schoolboy bump and man, I, I whacked the back of my head and it took the wind out of me and I immediately rolled out of the ring because I wanted to see where the controls were because I figured they tightened it up when I got in there, you know, and uh, that just isn't true. The pro wrestling ring, you still have to know how to fall on it because if you fall the wrong way, it's still going to hurt you. Um, so we rented the ring from Jerry and, uh, we did our own little kind of like backyard show. And then from that, Jerry watched and, and Jerry uh, told me basically, Hey, you know, I'll train you because he knew I was, I was an Italian kid um, and he was Italian. And so he, uh, he said, Hey, I'll, you know, I'll train you if you can get down to Hayward. And uh, so that's how I kind of got into that. Right. Awesome. So, uh, my research also told me that a guy by the name of Rick Thompson helped out with training. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So Rick, so Jerry was my first trainer and, and Jerry trained kind of like, he wasn't a wrestler. Jerry was an entertainer and Jerry trained like, like it, it, it was little like, like, like sticks, like little, like little short stories and, all together, you put enough little short stories, it makes a match, you know? And uh, so, for example, Jerry would do this spot a lot where the match would start off, the heel takes the headlock, tells the referee, Jerry's got my trunks, you know? The referee goes around the backside and the heel punches Jerry in the head. Jerry complains to the ref, the ref didn't see it. Jerry you know, complains to the crowd, Hey, you know, speak up here. And the crowd all says, yeah, we saw it. The referees again, I, sorry, I didn't see it. I I can't admonish him for something I didn't see. So they do this again and the same exact thing. 
Well, the third time they go to do it, the uh, the heel says, oh, you know, bad guy says, oh, he's got my my trunks. The referee goes around. The heel goes for the big punch. Jerry, while in the headlock, reaches his ar- his other arm up his his uh, left arm and blocks the headlock, turns it into a headlock, and then boom, 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 punches the heel a whole bunch of times, winds it up. Bam, one last one. The heel takes a bump, and now the heel is yelling at Jerry, hey, why are you punching him, blah, 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 you know? And so it kind of gives the 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 referee the heat, in a way, um, for being just blind. You know, he's the only one in the whole arena that can't see what's going on. Um, <laughs> you know, the 5,000 people see it, but not the ref. Uh, so that's kind of how Jerry trained. and. His training style uh, was lax, and and I, I'm not speaking badly of Jerry. That's just kind of how it was done. The uh, the more experienced guys would get in there with you, and they just kind of beat the shit out of you. And while they were beating the shit out of you, they might, you know, ask you, "Well, hey, do you know how to do this?" You know, and you didn't, and so they might teach you something. You know, and that's just kind of how it was done. You learned kind of as you went. And uh, Rick Thompson came along and he approached it like a sport. He was he was the first person that I saw um, take it. And man, it was drilling and grueling training, you know, and. Jerry. was not that way. Jerry's training was a lot like funner to attend really, honestly, but Rick's training I knew was where I needed to be. And, and I knew if I wanted to succeed and I wanted to be more than a jobber, I knew that I had to learn how to wrestle and protect myself because when I got into the business, uh, gosh, the, the smallest guy in WWF at the time, was because uh, that was WWF era uh, was Coco Beware, and Coco was bigger than me. Yeah, you know, I I was very small, so I had to learn how to wrestle and protect myself. And so Jerry's Jerry, that's that's when Rick came along and and kind of changed things. Right, cool, cool. Um, okay, so again, the internet can be quite difficult with research sometimes so uh, i've done my best here i don't know excuse me when your debut match was um the first match that i found in my research was the 18th of june 1991 on wwf wrestling challenge at the convention center in fresno california uh against the beverly brothers teaming with bob allen and julie under the name of mike stone is that correct yeah yeah um, that wasn't the first match. Uh, I was gonna say, <laughs> but that was a that was a that was an interesting match. I actually remember that one. Um, yeah. So my first match was against Coco Beware. Oh and, wow! Um, okay. <laughs> as far as like for WWF, yeah. Um, yeah. My first match ever was against a, a totally different guy, the Samoan Bulldog, and he just basically beat my ass. Um, but. Coco Beware worked with me and and uh, made me look a lot better than I was. I 
I really, I, um, after that match, I understood a hundred percent how bad I, I, I really was. And, um, I was still training under Jerry at that time. So there's kind of a backstory to how I got that match too. Um, it never dawned on me at the time because I just didn't even think about it. Okay. But so that match, the match against Coco, and I don't remember exactly when it was, I think it was 90. Um, I graduated in 89 from high school. And I think it was 90 was my first time wrestling for WWF. And um, that was at the Sayland Arena um, when I wrestled Coco Beware in Fresno. And the night before, I went to Arco Arena and I, I was scheduled to wrestle. I ended up getting scratched off the board. And uh, one of Billy Anderson's guys got put in there. Back in those days, there was a lot of like, uh, you know, Billy Anderson's an awesome guy, but there was, but everybody pushes for their own guys, you know? Yeah. And so Billy Anderson had a school, uh, Roland, Roland Alexander had a school and, uh, or not yet. I'm sorry. Jerry Monty had a school. And, uh, so Billy was pushing for his guys. I ended up getting scratched and, but I was still getting paid. So I stayed, I stayed suited up and I didn't want to stay in the like dressing room area because back in those days, there was a lot of hazing, you know? Uh, and so I didn't want to be the brunt of somebody's joke, uh, simply because I was standing around derp in my spandex. <laughs> no, I'm not wrestling, but uh, I just like sitting around and frill, you know, uh, I looked like a wannabe, uh, out of shape rocker. Uh, <laughs> and, um, so I kind of went and stood out by the garage and where all the rental cars were parked and stuff. This is, this was not like public parking. This was where the boys all were parking. And while I was standing out there, kind of leaning up against a post Hulk Hogan and man, it would have been so nice to have a cell phone back in those days to like, just be able to sit there and talk to somebody or take a couple of photos of, you know, everything and talk to some, like just to be able to do anything other than just stand there looking stupid, you know, (laughs) I can see. Um, But I was just standing there looking stupid, leaning up against the post, you know, killing time. And uh, a limo pulls in and out of the limo is Hulk Hogan uh, Brutus Beefcake and Jimmy Hart and uh, Jimmy Hart and Beefcake, you know, they just walked by me and, and uh, Hogan was starting to walk by me and he just kind of stopped and he looked at me and he says, Hey, how you doing? And uh, man, I was, you know, a little starstruck, honestly. And uh, I was like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm good. And, he goes, well, you look nervous. And I, I said, well, I'm, yeah, I'm a little nervous. And he's like, well, you know how to bump, right? And I said, uh, yeah, I know how to bump. And he says, cool. Well, that's all you got to do is just bump, you know? And uh, and I was like, okay, thank you. And he says, I'm Terry. 
And I said, yeah, I know exactly who you are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he shook my hand and he said, are you scheduled to work tonight? And I said, no. And uh, he says, I, I said, I was, but I got scratched. And he said, well, what about tomorrow? He goes, are, are you going to Salem Arena? And I said, yeah. And um, he goes, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll see you down there. And, uh, and so then coincidentally, the next night I got put up against Coco Beware. And that was for USA's primetime wrestling. And uh, that was an awesome show. I, I used to love that show. Um, it was two hours, but sometimes they would take, you know, two very good jobbers, like, you know, I don't know, like maybe uh, Rene Goulet and, and Barry O and, and let them have a match where you actually were like, wow, these guys, these guys can wrestle more than a minute and a half. Like, this is amazing, you know? And uh, so I used to love that show, USA Primetime. And, and so they put me on that show. And one of the things that blew me away in the match was at a point, Coco Beware says, all right, man, give me heat. And I wasn't prepared mentally to do that at all. Um, so all I could think was to like punch and kick, you know, so because I didn't want to take any liberties. I mean, back in those days, man, like if you took a liberty with a guy's body and, and somebody got hurt, man, somebody was going to get up and knock you out, you know? And uh, so I didn't, I didn't want to just pick him up and start suplexing him around or anything, you know? And uh, the only thing I ended up doing to him was give, I gave him a hip toss out, out of, <laughs> and I gave him quite a bit of quite a, I chopped meat quite a bit. Like there was a lot of punching and kicking and uh, <laughs> it was, it, it looks very repetitive. If you ever see the match. Um, I used to have a VHS copy, honestly, <laughs> but you know, who knows what happened to that? But, uh, yeah. So that was my first match was Coco Beware at the Sayland arena. Uh, first match with, with WWF. Right. Cool. Okay. Well, that, that's interesting. I really love the backing story for all of that too. Uh, just so surreal. But <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I always think maybe Hogan put in a word for me, you know, and, and, uh, made that happen, you know? Um, it, uh, so you had this Coco match. I saw this match where you teamed with Bob Allen against the Beverly brothers, uh, Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom. Um, yeah. Well, were, were there like a, a whole heap of these type of matches because my research must have, you know, I just didn't find anything else other than that one match. Did you, did you do this quite often for the WWF? Um, not a whole bunch of times. I had, I had like a few tryouts with them <clears throat> beyond the mat. It was interesting because in the movie, they portray it as my first uh, tryout with WWF. Um, or WWE, I might've been WWE at the time. I, I don't remember. Um, but they, they portray it as my first tryout. It, I, I had had many tryouts with them, um, opening matches, you know, and, uh, I wrestled Kurgan. Um, I didn't, I didn't do it a whole bunch, um, because once Rick started training me, that was part of the agreement was that I had to stop being a jobber. Okay. Uh, Rick didn't want me to be 
labeled as such. Yeah. You know, he felt like once you got that moniker, okay, oh, this guy's willing to lose all the time. Okay, cool. Well, we'll just lose all the time, you know? So, but yeah, I wrestled Kurgan and, and, a, and a handful of other guys, uh, you know, just go in there and get, get beat up real quick kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, Fair enough. Fair enough. I just wanted to just to uh, prod you there and and find out uh, if there was any any more of that type of stuff. But because uh, in my research again, couldn't find much information of what took place between 1991 and 1995. Uh, so that's like a blank spot there because all I saw was right. 95 All Pro Wrestling out of Hayward, California. With uh, if people have seen Beyond the Mat, you'll know Mr. Roland Alexander. Um, how did you first uh, meet Roland and, you know, what were your first impressions of the man? So Roland, so when I was working with Jerry Monty, uh, Buddy Rose was, was wrestling for Jerry quite a bit. Jerry was bringing him down from Oregon and Jerry and Buddy Rose were, were friends. And uh, so Roland and Buddy were friends too, and Roland basically had had asked Buddy and Jerry if he could manage Buddy Rose at this show up in Crescent City, which is kind of near Oregon, um, but still in, in California. Uh, so Jerry and Buddy both said, "Sure, yeah, you can you can manage Buddy Rose." up at this show. So <clears throat> Jerry made a condition though. Jerry said, but here's the deal. You got to rent a van and then uh, you got to bring a whole bunch of my, my kids up there to work the show. I was one of those, one of those guys. And uh, he says, and you know, they'll pitch in for gas, you know? So <clears throat> Roland was like, all right, you know, fair enough. So he rented this van and we all piled into it and, and took off. Rick Thompson was also in the van as well. A buddy of mine, uh, Mad Dog, uh, Gary Costa, and uh, a guy, uh, a Dan the, the, the White Nightmare, uh, Jamie Suitonu. There was, there was like a handful of, of wrestlers that, that were in this van. And uh, we all drove up there. And once we got to the fairgrounds, uh, Roland was trying to get a, get in touch with Buddy and talk to him, and Buddy was being very kind of elusive. And Roland finally, you know, pinned Jerry down and was like, "Hey, man, am I managing Buddy tonight?" And Jerry said, uh, "Well, you know, here's the thing." you got to, you know, pay 2,500 and come to my school and I'll teach you how to be a manager. And, uh, and then you can manage buddy. And that pissed Roland off. And on the way back from that show, Roland said, well, that's it. I'm opening up a wrestling school and I'm gonna put Jerry out of business. And, uh, <clears throat> so Roland did, he opened up a wrestling school. It didn't put Jerry out of business, but he did open up a wrestling school. Right. Interesting. Wow. I, that's, I love, 
To, to, to you, that might just seem like a run-of-the-mill story. To me, that's the minutiae I'm looking for in this interview. I love that. Excellent. <laughs> uh, um, I wanted to talk about the mid-90s uh, because, <clears throat> you know, light heavyweight, lightweight wrestlers under, you know, workers under the six-foot-tall were still kind of being used as enhancement talent or jobbers uh, in the big feds, as you know, WCW, WWF. Um, how does a Mike Modest start feeling about the business in 1996 when you start to see guys like the one, two, three kid? Well, he came in a little bit before that, but, uh, you know, WCW with Malenko, Mysterio, Psychosis, Super Calo. Uh, you start to see the lightweights stealing the show uh, and yeah. being given bigger spots. Does this give you hope that this, you know, big man sport is starting to open up and, and have opportunities? It it did. And, um, I, I, by that time, I believe the internet was coming around. Correct. Yeah. Um, so it was a lot easier to kind of get yourself out there a little bit. Um, even though it was still, you know, primitive compared to today, there were still blogs and people would get on there and, and you could talk about somebody. And so uh, not only was I able to see these guys, these smaller guys um, getting better spots, but people were also able to start seeing me um, and other companies would give me better spots because that's what the bigger companies were doing. Um, whereas before all, most companies were like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're five, nine. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, 215 pounds. All right. You know, yeah, we'll use you, you know, we'll, we got somebody that, you know, we can use you to job to, you know, it was like that. They, they didn't think, oh, okay, well, yeah, we can put you into a, a decent spot, you know? So it, yeah, it changed the business a lot, man. Uh, Rey Mysterio, the uh, the whole blending of the Lucha style, being able to kind of come into wrestling helped me tremendously. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, was, I asked some of the guys that I uh, have had on the show that were kind of more of a cruiserweight, how they felt when they, you start seeing that happen and that's interesting to see that now opportunities open up, you know, in different areas of uh, of the US uh, during that time period. Um, yeah, you're putting a lot of hard yards with uh, APW through 95 until 97. Um, what would you say business was like for APW? And, and can you tell me about, um, you know, also any jobs that you had on the side whilst you were, you know, chasing your dream? Yeah, so I... <clears throat> I did all kinds of stuff. I, I did linen delivery, um, roofing. Uh, I worked at a mortuary for a period of time. Um, furniture company, furniture delivery. Uh, you know, I just, I did basically every job I got was to support my wrestling habit. Yeah. You know, uh, unfortunately I wasn't thinking, well, fortunately, I guess. I wasn't thinking like, oh, career, I want to, I want to get with this, you know, company and deliver furniture for the next 25 years and retire as a furniture delivery guy, you know? Yeah. So 
every job I got was, was just specifically geared towards whether it worked for wrestling or not. Uh, uh, the first day I went to, to go train down at Jerry's place on the way out the door, my mom and my dad were watching television and they said, uh, Hey, uh, you know, son, you're not, you're not thinking about like doing this for a living, are you? And I said, Oh no, I, this is like a, like a hobby, you know, like just something to have fun, you know? And then as soon as I started doing it, I was like, well, this might be, might, might be something to do. When I, I wrestled Coco Beware, one of the moves I was really afraid of was the Ghostbuster, you know, where he picks you up and drops you seemingly straight on your head. Yeah. Um, he doesn't tuck, tuck your head, but it's still a pretty rough bump. And I was, I was mortified. I'd never taken it before. And uh, I was thinking, because he also used a missile drop kick off the top rope. So I was praying that's what he was going to do. But I should have known with my size that he would want to pick me up, you know. And uh, so at be, before the match, I, we didn't even get to talk before the match. And so that's what I'm saying, like, what's a little bit different, you know, uh, now than, than then. Um, we didn't even get to talk before the match at all. And uh, the referee gave me the finish. He went over, he checked Coco when Coco came into the ring. He checked Coco out and uh, Coco told him Ghostbuster. He turned around to check me and he said Ghostbuster. And so then my heart started beating. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. <you know? laughs> but uh, but he hit me with the Ghostbuster and I didn't know how to go up and, and hold for a suplex. So I, you know, I knew that much and I knew just to relax. I knew he'd take care of me and he did. Boom. It was fine. And, uh, I remember that night I had to sleep on the floor because I, in the hotel room, because I was like an extra guy that, that, uh, got to go. So the uh, other two guys that were invited got to have the beds and I slept on the floor. And I just remember laying there. You know, because that that morning when we woke up, we went and laid by the pool and got a suntan and swam for some exercise. Then we went to the gym and we had, you know, a nice breakfast. And and then we went to catering, at, at, you know, uh, at, at the at the venue. And then I wrestled. I took the Ghostbuster and now I'm chilling in the hotel and I get to do the same thing again tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> I want to do this forever. I was like, this is an amazing life, you know? <laughs> and it is when you're, when you're, you don't have kids and all of that. But once you have kids, it, it, it does change the, uh, the whole thing dramatically. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, <laughs> and uh, one person's name I wanted to bring up because it seemed like you were tied to the hip with this man through your time with APW, but also Noah, uh, Donovan Morgan. Uh, it, it seems like he may mean a lot to your career considering how much you guys did together. Um, could you tell me a little bit about uh, Donovan? Yeah, man. Uh, so back Back when I got in into the business, you know, we 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 did a lot of uh, we did a lot of things to make ourselves look super successful, and, and we weren't necessarily, you know, like I had a fake watch that was gold. Um, it it didn't work, but uh, when someone would ask me for the time, I would just look as if it did, and then I would go, "Oh shit!" 
and I'd tap it and I'd go, oh man, battery must've just went out, but it just didn't work. But it looked <laughs> fantastic. Um, you know, I had some, some gold chains and, and I would dress real nice when I'd show up to the shows. <clears throat> I had a Camaro that, uh, it was a four cylinder. So it, it was crap. It, it only, I think it topped out at like 75, 80 miles an hour. It's just a horrible piece of trash. And, uh, but it looked fantastic. It looked like the Knight Rider car, you know? Very cool. So uh, Donovan showed up at one of these shows somewhere near where he lived and, um, or one of his friends lived. And he went to the show and he dressed in a suit and he came up to me and he said, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to start training at, at APW, you know, and, and, uh, I shook his hand and I was like, Oh, right on, man. You know, like, I think you're going to be really successful. And, uh, he was, you know, he, he wasn't, um, he wasn't a tough guy. Um, he was, he was a little bit tender when he started, you know, uh, but he toughened up fast and he, he learned very quickly and was not afraid. Like after a very short period of time, he understood that pain was a part of that sport and that art, you know, it just comes with it. So if you're uncomfortable with pain, then it is the wrong thing to do. Uh, in, in some ways it can be harder than, than even uh, like shoot fighting, like UFC, because if you're fast enough, strong enough and good enough, you can hit the guy three or four times before he ever touches you and knock him the F out and fights over. And you don't even have to feel any pain. The chances of that happening, you know, pretty rare and it doesn't happen too often, but it's possible. You don't have to take pain. The pain is delivered to you. In professional wrestling, you are signing an agreement to take pain. When someone, you know, suplexes you off the top rope, you are, you know, it's going to hurt. Um, I took an Olympic slam off the top rope one time uh, in Japan from Sagira. He's the one that took the GHC junior heavyweight championship from me in Japan. And uh, that's what he used. And man, things like that, you know, like they hurt. And, uh, but you get so used to it that it's just part of the exchange, you know? And, and so that's kind of how Donovan was. He very quickly, he just understood that that's part of it. And fear was not a, an issue for him at all. And, uh, he, he did a lot of the high flying stuff, even though he wasn't like a natural at it. He wasn't like naturally gifted acrobatically, um, but through determination, he would learn all these, you know, all, you know, like a, a springboard moonsault or whatever. He would he would do it, you know, through determination and, and balls. Oh, well, thank you for shedding some light on him, because I wanted to bring him up for uh, uh, something that's. Uh, in my research here, the 23rd of February, 1998, at the Arco Arena in Sacramento. Uh, you team with Max Justice to take on uh, Robert Thompson and Donovan Morgan on the, in a dark match for the uh, 
128th edition of WCW Monday Nitro, um, just for those playing at home. Uh, how was the experience of doing, uh, I, don't, um, I don't know if this is your first experience at WCW, but in comparison to the WWF, how would you compare the two and what was this one like? Well, um, that was the first time that <clears throat> I, I got to work for, for that company. And it was, it's weird because sometimes I almost forget about that whole thing. I, I almost forget that it even happened, but the coolest part about it for me was that Paul Orndorff respected us and liked what he saw. Um, we had a, a pretty decent match, man. We had a, I thought we had a really good match. Um, and Paul Orndorff really liked it as well. There was a lot of politics going on. Um, the right people weren't watching. Uh, it, it was, it was a, it was a strange company at the time. It was like, you had to have not just one person watching, you had to have multiple people watching. Um, and it was like almost like a board and that you had to kind of go through that almost wasn't even official. But um, to explain better, when I did get signed by WCW, I, J.J. Dillon had been watching, um, uh, Kevin Sullivan, Arn Anderson, Bob Mould. Um, it was multiple people were watching my match and paying attention to it. They were, they were all deciding whether or not I could be put into storyline, whether or not uh, I fit in, you know? Yeah. Um, so the, the first tryout that I ever had with them was, was that, that one with Max justice and, and uh, Matt Heisen who, or uh, Donovan and, and uh, Robert Thompson. Um, and it was really dismissive, except for Paul Orndorff. Everything sucked except for Paul Orndorff. Um, Paul Orndorff basically even apologized and said, you know, there's a lot of politics happening here right now. And, and uh, the right people weren't, weren't watching, you know, and, uh, but that opened the door for me. Like anytime I ever went to one of their shows, I would try to see Paul and at least, Hey Paul, you know? Um, <clears throat> so it, it, it was, it was a really important tryout. Really. A lot of times it's not about what happens to you at that tryout. It's, that now a few people know you or recognize your face and the next tryout you might have more people interested because they do recognize you you know right yeah no that's uh all interesting stuff and and, and lessons there for people out there um you know Every time you're there, you, you made sure you said hello to him. You know, that's keeping you fresh in his mind. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, I, I, of course, you know, with interviewing you, I'd have to bring up uh, Beyond the Mat. You have mentioned it a, a couple of times so far. Um, 
you know, this is when me and my friends first uh, were made aware of you and Tony Jones, of course. Um, we, I remember when we watched it, we were really behind both of you. We really wanted you to, to see you succeed. We were, I don't know how old we were at the time, maybe 13, 14. Um, and uh, so this is like a really big film for us to see because it was very eye-opening. Uh, when you look back at uh, Beyond the Mat now, you know, how, how, does, how does it make you feel and your inclusion in the film? Well... Honestly, like one of the things that's going to sound so stupid, but one of the things that I think is so cool about being in that movie is, you know, like, like anybody can be in a movie. Right. But I got my fucking cats in the movie, man. Like that was cool to me to see my cats on the big screen was just priceless. And, and to know that like, even though they're both gone, you know, for many years now, uh, I, they're right there still, you know, everybody will see those cats. And I went to, I, when I was wrestling for WCW, there was a show that I, I showed up and Terry Funk was there and Terry Funk saw me and he goes, Mike modest. God damn it. He goes, you know what? The biggest pop in that damn movie is you with them fucking cats. He goes, every time they see you waking up with them cats, it's a big pop in that fucking movie. And uh, so that was, that was really cool because I, that was the first time I ever met Terry and, you know, he already knew who I was. So that movie did a lot of really cool things for me. And, um, but yeah, that it was, it was really an interesting time too, because uh, so let me give you a backstory about that tryout um, tryout. Right. So Barry Blaustein approached me to do the movie and I was already at a point where I, I wasn't marking out for different opportunities. You know, like I wanted, I, if, if, if I was going to be a part of something, I wanted it to serve me in some way. And Barry had already made it clear that there was really no money uh, to be made um, by being in this film. So I've, I was just like, okay, well, if there's no money, then I don't, there's no reason for me to be in it unless I get like 10 minutes. I need 10 minutes of a tryout <clears throat> because what happened a lot of times to me is I would, you know, before, before the match, they'll tell you, okay, you got 10 minutes for your, for your tryout for your, you know, and uh, for your dark match. And uh, then a half hour before the match, they'll come up to you and go, hey, you only got five, five minutes. We're cutting time. Somebody went over, so you're cutting time, five minutes. Then you're standing there in the gorilla booth and getting ready to go out. And now they tell you, you got three minutes, three minutes. You got three minutes. Oh, fuck. So now you go out there and on the way out there, the referee's telling you, guys, go home a minute into it, you know? <laughs> and uh, so that had happened to me on a few occasions and it really pissed me off because my style of wrestling is all about storytelling. I don't come out and do a triple Lindy backflip uh, neck breaker. 
um, right off the bat to catch your attention. Um, that comes at the end of the match. Joking. I don't ever do that shit. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm big on telling a story in the match and trying to get pops from that, from people watching the story develop. And then they go, oh, wow, I see what just happened. In a way, I draw back on Jerry Monty and the way he structured matches um, for that, you know, uh, whereas Rick could go more on the fly because he was a real wrestler. And um, Jerry did a lot, lot more storytelling. Uh, Rick would, you know, of course, concentrate on a body part and and uh, tell a story that way. And um, that body part would would likely have some involvement in the finish of the match. Uh, I'm sorry, I kind of got off off base. Where, what was the question? Where were we? <laughs> That's fine. Bro. Uh, no, we were just talking about, um, you know, uh, beyond the mat and how it uh, made you feel after all these years. And um, oh, OK, so, it. yeah, they, they would yeah. cut the matches yeah. short. They would cut the matches short and I, I, I would never be able to tell the story, you know, yeah. and I would never have enough time to win over the fans because I'm this unknown guy walking in the ring all of a sudden, you know, who's kind of short, stocky fella, you know. So I made an agreement with Barry Blaustein. I said, well, I want at least 10 minutes. I want 10 minutes of a tryout, you know. So he agreed. Um that's that was the story from the whole you know from the time we got there we were supposed to have 10 minutes yeah when we got to the gorilla booth we were supposed to have 10 minutes when we got out there 30 seconds into the match the referee's saying go home i'm not joking 30 seconds into the match uh i don't remember who had what but i remember either i had a headlock or tony had me in a headlock and we were on the on the mat and the referee says, guys, you got to go home. And I calmly said, no. Good. And he Good. said, he said, what? And I said, <laughs> no, I'm not going home. I was told 10 minutes and I'm taking fucking 10 minutes. And the referee said, hey, uh, Bruce, are you hearing that? It was Bruce Pritchard. He was the guy up in the booth calling go home. And I could hear Bruce yelling. I could hear him. That's how loud he was fucking yelling in the earpiece oh my God. that I could actually hear it. Him saying, you fucking go home. Does he know what fucking go home means? Fucking go home, go home, go home. And nope, me and Tony finished our match. We did our match. Good. And I knew, I knew that here's what I, here's what I thought. Okay. I knew that draws was going to be the star guy of Beyond the Mat. I knew that Draws was involved. I was enough, I was privy enough with the internet that I had learned about this. And I recognized almost immediately that I was going to be the sad sack. Wah, wah, wah. Poor Mike Modest. He just sucked. Look at him. He wrestled for 30 fucking seconds and couldn't do it. They just fucking sucked. And that was going to be my fucking role in Beyond the Mat. And I saw it coming, man. And that's why I said I wanted 10 fucking minutes. 
And when they called go home early, I knew I was fucking right. And I was like, fuck you. You guys don't want to hire me, WWE? Fuck you. I'm going to take my 10 fucking minutes. And at least on this documentary, they're going to have to explain why I didn't get a fucking job because I looked like I should have got a fucking job. Yeah. Especially when people started popping. But the reason I didn't get a fucking job was because I just, it was right at that cusp of that time, uh, you know, with the whole size thing. Um, but right after, uh, soon after that, uh, Spike Dudley ended up getting into WWE and, and uh, you know, they did start really welcoming the smaller talent. But that's kind of the way I just felt. I was like, man, I've had so many tryouts with this company and they apparently don't want to hire me. I just don't want to be made a fool of in this yeah. documentary. That's all. Yeah. Like, that's all I'm asking. Don't make me look like the, the schmuck. Yeah. You know, and I don't think, you know, I, I don't know who was in charge of trying to cut the match that short, but I wasn't going to let that happen. And uh, so we finished our match and they never, never hired us. And uh, I got a lot of heat about the NBC wrestling expose, NBC wrestling secrets exposed. Um, and uh, that kind of sealed my fate with WWE. Um, you know, at the time, but WCW hired me after, and uh, so did Noah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I I just love that you stuck to your guns there. That's a, that was that's my favorite story so far in this interview. I love it. Um, sometimes you sometimes you have to in 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 any industry really. There's times where you just you have to stand up for yourself. You know, you just you can't you can't just you can't take it up the ass and not at least get a glass of wine. <laughs> Great analogy, but yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, either way, you weren't going to get the job. Either way, you weren't going to I realized it, it yeah. yeah. So was, you might as I well like, just... You know, <laughs> I was like, I, I realized this is not going to happen. I, I already know that I am not the success story that they want to tell. And then unfortunately... God bless him. Uh, Draws ended up breaking his neck and his career was cut so short, you know, um, very sadly. Definitely. Yeah, that was uh, one of the more horrible things that uh, I yeah. remember from my early fandom of, of pro wrestling. Um, next question I wanted to bring up because I wasn't sure if this was right or not. Uh, 16th of February, 1999. I believe there's a dark match on WCW Saturday night in uh, Lakeland, Florida. Yourself and Max Justice team up as a team known as the Border Patrol. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, against Barry Horowitz and El Dandy. Uh, it's because it just seems like it was a once off. So I just wanted to know if there was any story behind this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, man, I can't even, I can't even believe that. Uh, that was so long ago. <laughs> yeah um I, I don't i i i mean i barely even remember the match um i always love working with barry horowitz barry horowitz is amazing um gosh i'm, I'm trying to remember el dandy and where was this uh, i was in lakeland florida lakeland florida 
gosh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that was me or not. Really? Because it says you and Max Justice uh, portrayed a team, the Border Patrol, Border Patrol 1 and Border Patrol 2 with the character names. I don't know. It says it was a dark match, so. No. Okay, so that, okay, so the whole Border Patrol gimmick, there was a team in WCW that did it, Mm. like, almost simultaneously as Max Justice and I were doing it out here in California. Right. And that was a whole different team. That was, that was, uh, that was a team in Florida that, that, uh, yeah, that wasn't us, but we did wrestle in, in, in Florida and around Florida a couple of times as the border patrol, we wrestled in St. Louis, uh, one time against, Oh gosh, what was his name? Uh, Gosh, I can't remember his name. He ended up being pretty successful in in uh, WCW to uh, Lenny Lane. All right. Uh, we wrestled against Lenny Lane and uh, some other guy. I, I don't recall his name. But um, so, yeah, that's why I got a little confused. I, it, it sounded familiar, but no, that wasn't that wasn't Max Justice and I. That was a, a different team. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, it looks like I'm just doing some research now. It looks like there's interestingly enough to it. (laughs) Another little side note of that too. So, I wrestled as the Border Patrol for CMLL. Um, I wrestled in Puerto Rico as the Border Patrol. Um, I wrestled a few places as the Border Patrol, and uh, um, also uh, went to Mexico and wrestled. for a company that Conan was working with. I don't remember who it was. I, it might've been AAA. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I, I wrestled with, you know, with that gimmick a few times and Donovan one time portrayed my partner, Max justice at another time. Uh, and then a guy who used to make <clears throat> highlight videos for me, stole the gimmick and trademarked it and uh actually sent me a cease and desist (laughs) to not use the gimmick anymore i told him i'd like to slap him upside the head with a phone book (laughs) but honestly it didn't matter to me i wasn't using the gimmick anymore at that time and uh so i just chalk it up to he's an asshole (laughs) it's <laughs> funny stuff bro um okay uh next thing i wanted to bring up I, I know i've taken up a lot of your time so far so i really appreciate it uh again research shows to me that you worked in late 99 and uh early 2000 for xpw there in los angeles uh believe uh yourself and donovan were there at a show called Dismembered in November in Ventura, California. Yeah. And I believe the last match was against Jake Lawless at Abuse of Power on January 29th. Do you have any stories of working for Extreme Pro Wrestling? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you, man, it was it was the most exciting company I ever worked for, for sure. Um, as soon as I would get to the building, Don. Donovan described it as walking into hell. 
He said you could feel the evil. <laughs> um, I love I love Rob Black, and I'll tell you why. Uh, more than probably anyone else I know, he will tell you exactly how he feels about something. He does not mince words. Um, the first night I met him, he opened his his home to me, uh, let me stay the night there. Uh, you know, he's a he he he's a he actually is a really decent human being. Uh, a lot of people might not realize that about him, but he's a he's a really decent human being. Um, but he's a wild man, you know, and or at least he used to be. Uh, I'm really glad to see that the the company's making a resurgence and they're they're doing things again. I'm super excited about it, you know, for um, all the the young talent and people who really like the deathmatch style. I was never big on it. And that was my whole gimmick in the company was that I was a wrestling purist and that, you know, I wasn't going to be doing any of that. <clears throat> I would start the match off by grabbing the microphone and uh, basically admonish the crowd, say, you people ought to be ashamed of yourselves, you know, applauding you know, Bob wire and people getting cut by glass, you know, that's barbaric. You know, I'm an athlete. I'm a professional wrestler, you know, and, and that's what you're going to see tonight. So anyone in this audience who is waiting for some blood and some guts and, and for me to hit people with chairs, you might as well just go ahead and stand up and go on out in the street and have a cigarette Go hang out in the lobby, do your drugs, whatever you degenerates do. That's what you should probably do at this point because you're not going to appreciate the true art form that I am going to demonstrate right now. You know, and then I would do my match. And at various points in the match, I would I would pick up a chair because I'm tempted. You know, I'm a, I'm a heel. I'm the bad guy. So I, I want to take the easy way out. And if I'm losing... I want to take that cheap shot, right? So I'd pick up the chair, but the crowd would get excited and I'd set it back down and kick the guy and send him back in the ring. <clears throat> and then eventually I'd, I'd bring the chair in and as the guy's getting up, I unfold the chair, knock him down, I sit in it and I would grab a, uh, an ankle lock from a sitting position in the chair. And then I would say, now that's how you use a fucking chair, you know? <laughs> and so that was my, my whole gimmick was to stay away from all of that shit. And of course, anyone I wrestled, that was their whole goal was to try to stab me with something or whatever. And, uh, uh yeah, they, um, uh, they did some crazy shit there, man. Uh, I saw homeless Jimmy, uh, get, uh, Jimmy Jaffil, I think is his, his name. Um, if you want to find him on Facebook, uh, he, he got power bombed into a shopping cart and from in the ring over the top rope to the floor where, where the shopping cart was on the floor and the shopping cart was just not big enough 
and like it hit the back of his head and he folded up into that thing and uh supreme got caught on fire uh i wasn't with the company at this time but of course we all saw the uh vic grimes fall and if you haven't you know type in vic grimes new jack death defying fall and that'll <laughs> you'll see it <clears throat> um yeah it was a it was a wild place to work uh i met some really cool people there um i i met sab i re-met sabu there i i met him at a thing called father's day bash uh like in 91 i think but i i met him again at, at xpw and uh, chris candido um uh nicole bass uh in fact, kind of an embarrassing story. Um, I I showed up early to the uh, arena at some show, and they had a massage table in in like the locker room area. So I thought, well, that looks like a good place to lay down and take a nap, you know. So I jumped up on it and went to sleep. And uh, I woke up, and Nicole Bass was on top of me. And she had my arms pinned down, you know, and she said, uh, well, what are you going to do now, Mike? And I said, well, I'm just going to simply power the fuck out of this. And I went to power out and no, <laughs> she was fucking strong, man. She had me pinned to the, uh, to the massage, massage table. There was, there was no way I could force my arms, you know, off of it. So then I bridged and knocked her. She went flying, <laughs> flying off head first. I didn't mean to do that though, you know, but at the same time, I was kind of trying to show her, Hey, I, I can still get out, you know, <laughs> I might, not, might not be able to match uh, strength for strength, you know, or whatever, <laughs> but uh, God rest her soul. She was a sweet, sweet person. Um, yeah. Blue meanie. I met there. Uh, a lot of people, um, John Cronus, uh, who arguably is one of the most agile big men I've ever seen in my whole life. It's amazing the things that guy could do at 275, 280 pounds, whatever he was, he was a big guy yeah. and, uh, he could round off hand, handspring backflip over the top rope. Like it was nothing. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed working for the company. Uh, there was a period of time where <clears throat> what had happened was I showed up to a show and I found out that I was going to be in this angle. Okay. And it was a rape angle. And the idea was that uh, I think Jake Lawless, myself, um, Ron Jeremy was supposed to be on this casting couch thing. And uh, this porn star girl was supposed to come in the ring. And then me and Jake Lawless grab her, throw her down, rip her clothes off, um, you know, down to panties and take her bra off, you know, so where she's uh, just in panties and topless, you know. And uh, when I found out that, I was to be in this angle. 
right away I was like, oh, fuck. I can't do this, you know? And I went in the locker room and I thought about it. And I, I just thought, you know, what if my grandmother was here right now? You know, um, now as an actor, doing a rape scene would be different because it's not public display. You are in a closed set with an actress, um, with a professional, uh, in a, in a completely professional environment. Um, and you know, with makeup and all of that, it's a different kind of thing. Um, this was kind of bothering me because there could be kids in the audience. And what if there were women in the audience that had been raped and now they're kind of watching this pro wrestling is still to me, even though it's entertainment, it still walks that line of reality and entertainment. And sometimes there are still organic things that happen in that ring. And so I just knew I couldn't do it. And I told Rob, I, I, I asked to talk to him. He was real busy, you know, and that's the last thing a struggling uh, promoter wants to deal with. Um, his porn company was doing fine, but he was funneling a lot of money into this wrestling company that really wasn't catching on yet. And uh, I mean, we would get some people there, but he was, you know, flying in guys from New York and, and, you know, flying in guys from back East. And so it, it, it was pricey. So I, I told Rob that I couldn't do it. He got pissed off right away. And uh, he was like, well, fuck it then, you know, you're out of the fucking thing then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, I pretty much knew I was like, wow. Okay. So I'm done with this company, obviously like he's pissed, you know, and Rob was the kind of guy that you don't want pissed at you um, and working with him. You don't, you don't want to do that. Um, you know, he, he comes from, you know, New York and uh, the porn industry and uh, you know, a lot of money. And so I, I just knew that my time there was probably done at that point and uh they went ahead and did it and from my understanding they actually got in some trouble uh for doing that um it is illegal uh to portray a live exhibition of rape mm. uh, in the state of california so um it ended up being an illegal thing and i was really glad that just because of my morals, I wasn't involved in that illegal thing because that would have really sucked, you know, to, yeah. especially to have had that little, little voice tell you, Hey, you know, don't do this. And to, if I had, if I would have ignored it, that would have been a tragic thing. So, yeah. So that ended my time there and Donovan stayed for a while longer and ran a training school for them. And uh, our thinking was we were already kind of thinking like as a tag team in a way, because 
I was his trainer. Um, and I had kind of told him, I said, well, man, I said, you know, Rob's pissed at me now. And I said, uh, I don't think I'm going to get any more bookings down here. I said, I just have a funny feeling. That's it. You know? And, uh, and I said, but I don't, you know, you don't have to quit because I'm being let go, you know, like you're making money down here and who knows, maybe this thing will pop off and be something big. And maybe you can convince Rob, Hey, Mike's not such a bad guy later on down the road and pull me back in, you know? And, uh, <clears throat> so Donovan stayed down there and tried to make a go of it, but you know, shit was just, it's, it's just crazy when you're trying to run a porn company and a, and a wrestling company simultaneously like that. It just, it, uh, led to a lot of interesting situations that just kind of didn't work out. I, in fact, so here's a stupid story. <clears throat> I was waiting in this lobby at this warehouse and the warehouse was where Rob kept his inventory of porn, all these VHS and stuff. And he was totally cool. Like, like when we first got there, he had like this gift bag thing and he goes here, here, get, get this bag, get this bag. And we go in the damn warehouse and he just starts fucking grabbing tapes and throwing them in there. And, um, his old lady, when she picked us up from the airport, she had, there was a box of, of DVDs in the back and she was like, Oh yeah, grab a couple of those DVDs. I think I'm in one of them, you know, and they were very cool people and, and very accommodating, very sweet. <clears throat> and, uh, so I'm at the warehouse and at the warehouse, they had the, the inventory and then they had these mock like rooms set up in the warehouse. So like there was a, a like a living room set up and then there was a bedroom set up and, they could move the furniture around, uh, move, you know, like take the white furniture out and put in oak furniture, you know, and make it look like a whole different bedroom, you know. Uh, they had all, they had like, I don't know, four or five of these little rooms set up, you know, to look like different places, a kitchen. Um, then they had this like little lobby area, you know, and that's where I was sitting, uh, waiting to do some promos because he had another area set up for XPW where we would do promos. We did uh, publicity shots and stuff like that. And so I was sitting there in that little, you know, in the, in the waiting room and this very, very pretty Asian girl came in and uh, she sits down and, you know, she's very nice right off the bat. I was, I was, I was actually like uh, very shy because she was just so stunningly pretty, a uh, very gorgeous girl. So I was kind of tongue tied, you know, and um, but she was so like cool that she made me feel really at ease. And uh, we start having this like regular conversation about life, you know, about the weather, animals, unicorns, you know, just cats, stuff like that. And then this guy comes in and he says, uh, sweetheart, um, which kind of lube do you prefer? And, uh, and she says, Oh, I, I really don't care, but I guess Astroglide or whatever it was that she picked. I think it was Astroglide. And, uh, 
he was like, okay, honey. And he walks off and, and I was just like, I was like, wow, I'm sitting here talking to this gorgeous, beautiful gal. And we're having like this totally normal, chill conversation. Meanwhile, she's about to get butt fucked. <laughs> and I'm just like, I can tell you honestly, if I was about to have any sexual anything at this point, uh, like I would be so nervous. Like, how can she just be having this like totally relaxed conversation? Like, you know, and she doesn't even know who she's working with necessarily, you know? And, uh, but yeah, she was so cool. And, um, but that, that was just kind of the, the vibe working there, you know? Tremendous story, very tremendous story. Um, I, I, I better get back to WCW talk now because uh, I have taken up a lot of your time. Um, so again, I appreciate it. Uh, 21st of March, 2000, TD Waterhouse in Orlando, Florida. You defeat Elix Skipper on an edition of WCW Worldwide. And then six days later, uh, you debut on uh, Nitro, defeating uh, the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea. This is just before that Russo-Bischoff thing. Um, So I remember seeing this edition of Nitro, seeing you on there, and then being like, oh, great. But then uh, it was confusing as a fan that I didn't see you after that, after you'd beaten the guy. You, You beat him. Right. Um, you didn't come back onto the TV show until January of 2001. So uh, tell me about that situation. It was really amazing because to me, it was the first time that you ever saw a major company not have consistency of any kind in story. Um, Everything just got all fucking screwed up during that time. So what happened was when I first got brought in, I was brought in by Kevin Sullivan and Bob Mould. And they had big plans for me. They were going to put the cruiserweight heavyweight championship on me. And uh, I was going to be kind of like this little miniature uh, Big Papa Pump. And they were going to have me and Candido start tag teaming I had very short blonde hair at the time. And so they were going to have me and Candido come out with Scott Steiner. Every time Scott Steiner comes out, he's got these two little blonde dudes that come out with him. Like, like that are his little minions, you know, and, and we're the little shit disturbers, but we're the ones that can job now. Anytime uh, they want scott to go down his you know now he doesn't have to job uh i i already assumed i was probably going to be the job guy uh between the three of us um chris was pretty established um as well uh but i didn't mind it was going to be a good spot and then i found out they were going to put the belt on me and uh that was at south padre island so when I beat Elix Skipper, um, that match, I wish I had, I wish I could see that match on the internet. I wish it was on YouTube or something I because, oh man, I would love that. Um, 
I've, I've never seen that. I mean, I have, I've seen it back in the day, but I haven't seen it in forever. And it was an almost perfect match. Um, I've, I've never had a perfect match and, um, I can always find something that I should have done better or that I could have done differently that would have improved the match. And, uh, when I watched that match, he does a, a spinning heel kick and I took a shitty kind of bump with it. Um, the, the bump didn't, wasn't, the bump wasn't as good as the spinning heel kick was. So I felt bad. And, uh, so took away perfect match status. Other than that, though, it was pretty good. And, uh, when I, when I went back, you know, behind the, the, you know, gorilla booth and, uh, Arn Anderson was there and he said, Mike modest, good match. And I said, thank you, Arn. And I walked down and, uh, JJ Dillon told me that, um, he went out and watched it live and that he said it was very impressive. And he, when JJ, he said, when I, when I'm, whenever I really want to watch someone wrestle, I don't watch it on the monitors. The monitors don't give you the real feel of what's happening. And he goes, you have to go out into the crowd and, and to really feel what the crowd is feeling about it. And, uh, so I had like these, all these guys that I really respected, um, Mike Graham, um, was a big one, you know, he's a wrestler's wrestler. And one of the things that I always did in my pro wrestling was I always added amateur into some spot or into some of my chain or at some point in my match, you, I, I would try to add some amateur wrestling. Um, so that people could tell that I really did know how to wrestle. That was important to me. And, uh, so guys like Terry Taylor, Mike Graham, uh, they all really appreciated that and appreciated that I was a wrestler. And, uh, so when I arrived at South Padre Island, um, I was expecting to win the title. When I got there, everything had changed. Kevin Sullivan had been fired. Yeah. Bob Mould had been fired. A uh, seize on all the belts. No belts were to exchange hands. And everything was different. So lucky for me, Terry Taylor and Mike Graham were still a part of what was going on with WCW. They still believed in me. And so they decided that the match I was going to go over, but that it would be a non-title match so that they wouldn't be in trouble. And, um, but things were so confusing that they still ended up announcing it as a title match live. When we went, when we went there, they announced it as a title match. And, uh, but by the end, it was clear that, you know, they, it was the, the announcers were putting it over that it was a non-title and this and that, but, um, also calling the match with Prince Ikea was very difficult because Prince Ikea was a Kevin Sullivan guy. He didn't know that I was also a Kevin Sullivan guy. 
he assumed that I was some asshole Bischoff and Russo guy that now they were bringing in, they were going to have me go over on him and probably take the belt in the next week or two. So talking to him, talking over the match was just like pulling teeth and everything I suggested he didn't like. Uh, he was a total dick and uh, a really strong dude, man. Um, uh, and a strong personality. And at a point, one of the things that they definitely wanted, they wanted me to use my finisher, which Kevin Sullivan had deemed the end, which uh, Shane Helms ended up stealing from uh, from me, but I stole it from someone else. I stole it from a Japanese chick. I watched all Japan's women, all Japan women's, and that's where I got it from. And uh, so I'm not trying to claim like I discovered the move. Um, So, but Shane Helms, the sweetheart gentleman of a guy that he is, he actually called me when I lost my job with WCW. He actually called me and asked permission to use it, which I fucking, I just unheard of like the class that he showed doing that. Didn't have to do that at all um great guy um so i was hired with that regime and then fired um shortly after so i had beat prince iakea in a non-title match and then they just decided eh, fuck it let's just put that guy on on hold for a minute and then the worst thing happened i had already quit my job and i had been working with wcw for over three months at this point okay And come to find out, I get contacted by their legal department and their legal department says, "Um, actually, you know what? J.J. Dillon held your contract. So you signed it, but it never got finalized. So that effing sucked. I was I was fired. Um, my contract was null and void. Um, I thought about trying to get a lawyer and fight them, but I had no effing money. Like I'm, you know, I'm a struggling wrestler at the time, you know, just, just first getting my break, you know? So I, I just, just started making some decent money. I was probably making like, I don't know, $3,500 a week, you know? Um, and boom, it's all done now. And I've got a wife, I've got, you know, rent, I've got car payment. And I had to go begging my job back. I had to go begging, you know, like, Oh, yeah, I thought I was gonna be pro wrestler. It was cool being on TV for, uh, you know, fucking a month or whatever it was. Um, But now I'm back to, you know, being a, a purchasing manager at a furniture company. And, uh, and that was a real, a real effing bummer, man. And uh, then when I ended up going back was under Bischoff's regime. I had talked to Kevin Sullivan and he was, man, I just love Kevin Sullivan. And uh, here, here he is, he's lost his job 
like for real, lost his job with no hope of getting it back. And he's telling me, hey, man, don't worry. Watch. They're going to hire you back. And then you'll be their find and not my find. So sure enough, uh, Terry Taylor contacted me uh, maybe six months or three months. I, I don't remember. But he contacted me a period after that and, um, you know, offered me a, a job. And, and then my contract was finalized that time. And uh, it's funny because that time I only wrestled for the company once. And it was, uh, it was my tryout. It was me and Chris Daniels. <clears throat> and that's when Chris did the backflip and landed on his head. And uh, I get heat sometimes for hitting him in the shoulders uh, following that. But uh, people are such marks. My shit looks so good that you think I hit him hard. And I didn't. I didn't hit him hard at all. I barely touched him. And um, the reason I hit him where I hit him was because I wanted to see if he sold it. It was so light of a shot that if he sold it, then I knew his brain was still in the match. Yeah. If he didn't sell it, you know, then it would look stupid because I was asking him as I was approaching him, I was like, are you okay? I was just not moving my mouth a whole lot. And my back was to the hard camera. And uh, I asked him, I was like, are you all right? And uh, he said, yeah, yeah. And so I gave him a little, little shot and he sold it. And I thought, okay, we're all right. And 30 seconds after that, he told me that he couldn't really feel his right arm. He had a stinger. And uh, if you watch during that match, I'll tell you what a, what a amazing athlete and performer and entertainer Chris Daniels is. Um, he does a skin the cat. He runs, jumps, hits me, you know, with like a kick through the middle rope. I go down. He skins the cat with one arm because his other hand is dead. So you can see he he flops it over the top rope like this, just hoping to kind of hook the top rope as best he can. And he does a skin the cat with one arm. Then he pulls himself over to a plancha with one arm and fucking planches on me. Like, are you kidding me? That's why I never did that shit because I'm not that kind of athlete. I'm like a short, stocky guy. I'm good at, you know, wrestling you on the mat, but I can't do like little skin the cats with one arm. Come on. One <laughs> arm pull up, basically. It was unbelievable that he did that. And that's after landing on his fucking head, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but everyone in the back was so impressed because we kind of knew we had to keep going because the Scott Steiner angle was depending on us. Right. And so we knew we had to get to a certain point for Scotty's cue in to come in. And uh, so we did it. And then after the match, um, you know, Chris was very distraught. He felt like um, the match sucked and that uh, we, we had lost our shot, basically, you know. And uh, Chris and I were good friends and i uh i just felt like man you know if there's one thing i've learned and i remember telling him this i go if there's one thing i've learned about this business is it doesn't make sense 
So I figure probably when we get hired, it'll probably be when we probably shouldn't have been hired. And, you know, cause that's just the way the business works. And uh, sure enough, you know, Bischoff called for us. We went in, talked to Bischoff. Bischoff hired both of us on the spot and uh, commended us for continuing and for being able to continue. And uh, he was concerned, you know, first that Chris was all right. Um, and, but, you know, so that's how we got our jobs. And then I never got used again, but I was under contract with them. And so I was getting paid. And what happened after that was WWE bought WCW and I was still under contract. So I was, I actually worked for WWE, <laughs> you know, in a weird kind of way. Yeah. <clears throat> they fired me uh, pretty, I was, I, I got Johnny Ace was on there and Johnny Ace was familiar with some of my Japan stuff that I had done because he had been working for uh, all Japan while I was, uh, you know, kind of coming up and stuff. And so he was a little familiar with me. And um, so he basically tried to keep me on as long as he could. And I ended up lasting to one of the last cuts that they did, um, which none of it really mattered anyways, because the company flopped anyways. And was all sold so it was just it would have just uh been prolonging the inevitable really yeah i can understand and i've I've spoken to a lot of guys that just finally started getting a little bit of a break or, or getting on tv getting on pay-per-view for wcw just right at the end there guys like alan funk uh and yeah. then all of a sudden Alan Funk finds himself in developmental again after he was already doing the power plant stuff for several years. Right. So, you know, I, I get all these stories from these guys. Uh, I want to hear your story here um, from how does it make you feel when you, you find out WCW is gone, uh, ACW also goes under during this period of time. This is a big change in the industry uh, this is, you know, I want to know what your outlook was like on the business at this point. And does this make you and, and Donovan feel like, you know what, we got to get out of here. Let's, let, let, let's try and get, uh, go to Japan for a, for a more prolonged amount of time. We got very, very lucky. Um, one of, uh, one of the big part of the NWA was a guy named Ed Schumann and Ed Schumann was kind of like a, a, a manager back in the day and this and that, but he was a promoter and he did a lot of different things in the business and uh, mostly just a, a really great soul. And uh, Ed had worked out some kind of deal where he was involved in bringing Noah to Harley Race's school and Noah was looking for talent because basically a bunch of guys had left all Japan and started their own company, Noah. And Ed knew that they had a layover in San Francisco, which was pretty close to APW. So Ed pitched basically, hey, why don't you send them a tape and maybe they, they'll come and check you out in San Francisco. 
So he gave me all the contact info. I sent them a tape and, or, uh, and they liked it. I think it was a DVD actually at that time, maybe. Um, I think it was, um, but they liked it. And um, we invited them to APW and they came by and they looked at a lot of the APW talent. Um, one of the guys they looked at that they didn't take was Chris Daniels. And the only reason uh, they gave for not taking him was that he was already working in Japan as curry man. That's, that's what they said. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if, cause I, I think they do that now. I think they, the inner promo, promotional thing, but for some reason they didn't bite on Chris Daniels and uh Ryan Quinn, I think was his, his buddy. Uh, I know his last name was Quinn. Kevin Quinn was his name. Kevin right, Quinn. Yeah. And I, I think he, he's still doing something in wrestling, like promoting something. Chikara, I think. Um, possibly. Uh, but <clears throat> they had a great match and I would have signed them. And, but they didn't get signed. But Bison Smith did. I did. Donovan Morgan. And... Uh, a few other guys got to go for a tour or so, but mostly it was Donovan, myself and, and Bison that got hired by Noah. And uh, we were very fortunate because that was a rough time in the business, man. There wasn't a lot of options. There, there just really wasn't. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I just, I, I always find it interesting because I've had a lot of guys like from the Florida indie scene on the show from that time period. And uh, you know, now all the options just all of a sudden got quite small in the United right. States when this went down. So, um, but yeah, that is great that you got this opportunity. And uh, I just wanted to ask you a, a little bit about the experience of Japan. You, you were there for, you know, four, nearly five years or so. Um, yeah. Tell me just uh, some stories of, of your time in Japan. Well, man, I'll tell you, I, I, um, I love the culture and, uh, the people, it can be a little frustrating at first when you don't understand the language and you don't understand the culture. Um, a lot of times it can be a little frustrating, you know, but, um, it's an amazing place. I hope to visit it again one time because in a way it's a home to me. Um, the, the company Noah was in my opinion, the, the, the best company, like as far as uh, talent wise, I think that um, Noah at a point had just like the best talent there was. Um, some of the matches that, that they had were awesome. Uh, Naomichi Marafuji, um, Junakiyama, um, Yoshinari Ogawa, Mitsuhara Masawa, um, Kenta Kabashi, um, Tawe, all these guys, um, Izumita, all these guys are like, uh, like brothers to me, you know? And, uh, when I found out Masawa died, it like, it broke my heart. Um, my, my, it was, it was just the easiest company to work for, you know? Uh, there were bummers about it. Um, they, they definitely let you know that you were a visitor 
that even though we were a major part of the company, that it was not our company. It was the, the Japanese guys. It was their company. And um, they would sometimes have these meetings where all the gaijin uh, foreign talent would all be excluded. And they, you know, all the Japanese guys would go into a, a, a room and, you know, learn this or that, you know, and uh, they, they would get on a bag of chips or they would get this little commercial deal or something like that. Um, you know, just like little perks that we weren't getting. And um, so that part of it sucked. But as far as like um, just the way the company was run, the way it ran, uh, the simplicity of because it wasn't uh, super story driven, um, the the stories were the stories are slight. They're not in your face like uh, you know. You don't have a guy getting in the ring going, you stole my girlfriend. Now I'm mad. And I'm going to come after you in a barbed wire electricity match. You know, like it's not that kind of story. Um, the stories are subtle and a little more believable. So a lot of times you don't even realize you're part of a story in a way. They do these little things and then, then you go, oh, I see why they did that. You know, that makes sense now. Um, so basically your job was our, our job. We, we just, we got on a bus and, uh, see like in the States, you know, you get flown somewhere and then you're at the airport and now you got to hustle, you got to figure out the airport and you got to go get a rent a car and you got to find your way to your hotel and then to the venue. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's not that easy in Japan. It was awesome because we just show up, boom, they, there's someone to pick you up. They take you out in the bus and they do whatever you need to do. And then they bring you to the hotel. You're at the hotel and now they, they drive you to the arena. So it's all you have to do is wrestle, you know, just sit, you know, uh, don't get too drunk. Um, don't cause problems. Don't be rude. Um, you know, remember that you're representing the company uh, the whole time you're there and just wrestle. So on that respect, it was just a fun place to work, man. All, that's all I had to do was just go out there and put out, you know, put out my, my knowledge of wrestling. And uh, it was interesting, too, because since a lot of the stuff I had seen from all these guys was always serious because we were seeing the very best because we were getting uh, – you know, VHS tapes and, and, and DVDs later. Um, but we were getting like their um, Ariake Coliseum matches, you know, or Tokyo Dome matches. So these were serious, <clears throat> serious venues and, and um, the wrestling is serious and it's uh, it's sport in nature. But what shocked me was we would go to these little country towns, like smaller places and all of a sudden, Masao would come and he'd go, oh, a uh, little bit Jota, okay. You know, and he would, he would tell me, okay, yeah, think of something funny, you know, for our match, you know. Um, one time, I swear to God, I think the spot on my head still hurts. Actually, it's right here, man. I'm not shitting you. It still hurts. <laughs> you fucked something <laughs> up. Um, 
me and Masawa, we used to do this, this spot. I used to, I used to do it with a couple of different guys. And, um, basically it was a play on, um, karate kid. <clears throat> we would start circling and then I would strike the flamingo pose that Danielson won the, the fight with, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the one legged flamingo stance. Right. <clears throat> and then I'd call out his name. Misawa-san. And he'd kind of stop and look and the whole crowd recognized what I was doing. <laughs> you know, like they recognized, oh, this is Karate Kid, you know. And then we'd circle again and I'd strike the pose again. Misawa-san. And he'd, whoa, like, hey, that's dangerous. I'm not going to step into that. I know what's <laughs> going to happen. You're going to fucking do the flamingo kick, you know. So then finally, third time, I try it again. I do the flamingo stance. Masawa starts to charge. I go for the kick. He blocks the kick and shoots it down, hits me with the emerald elbow, right? Um, then he snap mares me, and he does wax on, wax off on my head, right? <laughs> he, he says it in Japanese, wax on, wax off. <laughs> and then he slapped me one time, because we had done it a few times. But this one time he slapped me on the top of my freaking head so hard. It, it hurt like a son of a bitch, man. And I rolled out of the ring and I grabbed my head. I was like, Oh my God, boss, why did you hit me like that? I was like, fuck. And I swear it, I still had, it still hurts. It, there's like a, it, there's a sore spot right here on my head where I got slapped by Misawa. <laughs> it still hurts. I love you, Sacho. Sacho's uh, slang for um, boss. <laughs> Gosh, that's some great stuff, bro. Um, uh, what do you think you learned most about yourself from all that time you spent in Japan? Um, that I'm selfish and that Americans are selfish and that uh, we think about only ourselves. Mm. Very good point. Very good point. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story that taught me that. Um, I went to a place called Gusto's restaurant and they had these pizzas and cheeseburgers that I liked. And one was the American pizza and they had these cheeseburgers and the cheeseburgers were awesome. And they came with these good fries, man. It was like, it was like almost like being at home. It tasted close enough to where you, you felt like you were at home. And when I would go on tour, I would save, like I would always bring over my DVD collection. So, and then I'd watch movies on my laptop, right? Well, I would always bring every tour, I'd bring, you know, three to four brand new movies that I'd never seen. And I would save those movies strategically during the tour so that I had something to look forward to on a boring ass night where, you know, we were in some little town where there was nothing to do. I was also married and had two young boys. So I tried not to go out and party too much. And um, I stayed faithful to my wife. I'd never had a, a, a girlfriend in Japan and I didn't mess around. And uh, a lot of the guys respected me because of that. I, I would put up my wife and my kids pictures when I would check into my room. Um, so that like, how can you, you know, mess around or do anything you know, uh, dishonorable when you got your wife and kids looking at you, yeah. you know, and then, uh, you know, I had other rules like no girls in my room and stuff like that. 
um, that kept me, you know, cause I'm a, I'm a man at the same time. So, it, you know, I, I didn't want to tip myself. So, yeah, fair enough. uh, but I, I stayed faithful and I would, I would, I would strategically plan these movies during, during, uh, my stay. And this one night I, I just thought, man, this is awesome. Tomorrow's a day off so I can stay up. I'm, I got, I got, I bought some whiskey. I had some beer. I had a little pot, um, which is very hard to get over there. Um, I had a little pot and I was like, man, I'm going to go and get a fucking, uh, pizza and cheeseburgers and have a movie night. It's going to be amazing. Right. So I go to Gust Gusto's. I, I order the American pizza and cheeseburgers for takeout. The waitress says, Oh, Simo San, American pizza, dame. They do this, this thing like this. I, I got to put the phone down for a second. All right. <laughs> they do like this. And it means like no. So she goes, Dame. Yeah. And uh, I was like, No. I was like, American pizza, no takeout. Dame, takeout. And she goes, hi, no takeout. I was like, okay. Um, okay, fine. American pizza, I'll eat here. And then cheeseburgers, stock to two of them, uh, takeout. She says, okay, hi, daijobu, right? So she brings me the pizza first so I can eat it there. But here's the kicker. It's in a fucking cardboard box. It's ready to go. It's like a takeout <laughs> pizza, right? I look at it and I'm like, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe the pizza is takeout because it's in a cardboard box. Why else would it be in a cardboard box, right? Yeah. So then I decide I'm taking the pizza and I'm gonna wait for my cheeseburgers. So then the cheeseburgers come I pick up everything and I start walking out and the lady goes, Oh, Simosan, American pizza, dame, no takeout, no takeout. I go, Ima, takeout. Now it's takeout. I'm telling her now it's takeout. What are you going to do? Call the fucking pizza police, please. You know? Oh yeah, guys, taking a pizza out that isn't supposed to be taken out. The police are going to run down there and beat me with billy clubs. <laughs> the police there don't even have guns. So, you know, they're going to, ah, I'm not worried about it. I start walking out of the restaurant, dude. She is flipping out. She follows me down the, the sidewalk, like about a hundred feet yelling at me, pissed off that I'm taking this, this pizza out of the restaurant. Right. And I'm just like, I don't give a shit. I'm doing it. Like it's done. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, little late of that tour, I I'm talking to this Israeli friend of mine, and I tell him what happened. I go, you know, I went to Gusto's and you know the whole fucking thing, and and I go, can you believe that? And he goes, yeah, no, I can't. I can't believe how rude you are. And I. I go, what? What do you mean I'm rude? And he goes, well, I know you to be, you know, a very, you know, cool person, but that was very rude. And uh, that was typical American behavior. And I said, well, how do you mean? Like, what do you mean? 
And he says, okay, um, do you own that restaurant? I said, no. He goes, do you work there? No. He says, okay, so what gives you the fucking right to dictate that that pizza is takeout? For all you know, that chain is having a hard time selling the American pizza because Japanese people are maybe like, I don't want to eat the American pizza. And so maybe they want you to eat it in so that they can see people eating the pizza and maybe that'll spur the orders. Either way, it's not your decision. You don't own the place. So Japanese people, they understand that in order for their society to move smoothly, it has to be more about the bigger picture and not just about the individual. You have to look past what you want and what you think is important. And you have to look at what maybe the company thinks is important and what maybe the manager of the restaurant thinks is important and what the lady that works there and her job depends on it being important. Um, to all those people, it, it, it is important and it was important. And you, because you're so effing important as an individual, you just broke the rules of who gives a shit how things work and who gives a shit what that does. And I was like, oh, right on, is off. Thanks, man. I totally feel like this fucking big right now, bro. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, but it's true, you know, and it did. It changed my thinking a lot. Um, their problem with space, like the place I live, my apartment, you know, like um, it's pretty small, you know, by American standards. In Japan, this place is a palace. Uh, so it's all perspective, you know. Um, I, it, it, the Japanese people, they're very grateful for smaller things than we are here. Um, a lot of Japanese people never have the dream of owning a home. That isn't something that they dream of. So, you, so like when we're little kids, we think, oh, you know, I'll get a job and then we'll have family and then we'll own a house and we'll have a little picket fence and a nice little backyard and it'll be cool. You know, maybe I'll even buy a little a little swing set to put in that backyard. You know, well, in Japan, you don't have a backyard. If you do, you're wealthy or you had the house inherited. Um, and in Japan, when you're a little kid, you don't think, oh, one day I'm going to buy my own home. You're satisfied that maybe one day I'll have a wife and a family and I'll have a job good enough to support the renting of an apartment or the rental of a very small house or something. I knew um, a guy and his wife that they shared a studio apartment in Japan with her friend and they ran a curtain uh, between the two of them, you know, and I mean, the place, I'll tell you how small it was. Oh my God, this is a funny story. So I had the shits really bad. I ate something that was just like fucking terrible and it was killing me. My stomach was killing me. And I didn't know it was killing me until we got on the train and we got on this train and the train was like a 45 minute ride to where we were going. And the whole time I'm just like sweating. And I was with two cold Scorpio and I said, Hey, Scorp, I was like, uh, man, 
like how close are we man i was like because i i gotta go to the bathroom he's like oh we're, we're you know as soon as we get to the uh train station apparently they're they're close like they're real close so we get there i i i preferred not to use like a public restroom i was like i'll just hold it until we get there you know I, i'd rather go in someone's comfortable bathroom than a, you know a public restroom at a train station so we get to their house and I see like how small it is, you know, that it's a, basically a studio with a split room and their kitchen is the size of most bathrooms in, in the U S you know, like it's so tiny. The sink is the size of a little bathroom sink. Um, all of the pots and pans, because there's no cupboards um, or very little cupboard space, all the pots and pans are hanging. Everything hangs and uh from the ceiling and um so right when we get there i asked them uh to use the restroom i said oh can i you know bathroom don't go and so they point me to it i go to their bathroom and it's literally a small broom closet that has been fashioned into some type of bathroom for midgets for like really really tiny people I sit down and I realize right away, like, as I stand there, I've got my pants pulled halfway down. I'm trying to shut the door and I realize I can't shut the door. There's no possible way that I can sit down and shut the door. My legs are just too effing long and I can't split them wide enough because there's no room on the sides either. Like, this is not going to happen. And then I start thinking, how do these people take a shit and shut their door ever? I mean, they're small people, but but still, this is ridiculous. This is really small. So I have to leave their place. And I ask him, I go, "Uh, fast food, fast food, fast food, because I don't want to blow up their bathroom with the door open. Like, like, oh, my God. (laughs) Like, how embarrassing, man. And uh so yeah, nightmare. I had to run to this place called Moss Burger and uh use their bathroom. Moss Burger is an interesting place too. Like as long as you don't think of it as a cheeseburger, there it's pretty good. It's only a problem if you think of it as a cheeseburger. If you think if you think, oh, this is gonna be a cheeseburger, and then you eat it, you're gonna be like, oh, this is fucking horrible. But if you just if, if you go into it thinking this isn't a cheeseburger, it's a different kind of thing. It's it's like a sandwich. It's like a yeah, it's like a sandwich. It's like a it's a meat. It's a it's like a meatloaf. Right. Of you know. <laughs> Excellent stories, bro. I love it. Um, <laughs> uh, so after your time in Japan, uh, my research tells me that. Uh, and I could be wrong, but uh, your the amount of times you wrestle after those years uh, for Noah, <clears throat> you don't wrestle as often uh, moving through from 2005 onwards. Uh, you still wrestle, you know, almost every year up until 2017, but was there uh, a reason why that you started to slow down? Well, a really interesting thing happened. So when I worked for Noah, I was making $3,500 a week, right? But since WCW was closed by WWE, 
and WWE was like the only place to fucking work. Everyone started whoring themselves out for like no effing money at all. And uh, ROH was kind of coming up and a lot of their guys were like, you know, getting a little bit of TV time. And uh, even though it wasn't like nationwide, it was still something. And um, they were uh, amazing. All uh, ROH hired nothing but amazing talent. In fact, I worked with them. I worked with uh, uh, Daniel Bryan um, against uh, Donovan Morgan and Chris Daniels uh, very early in, in ROH. Um, but, uh, so guys from ROH were like hitting no up saying, Hey, I'll work for 750. I'll work for 550. I'll work for, you know, like, like no money at all, just to, just to go because they were single. They didn't have to support a family. So they would go just for the experience, you know? And so suddenly, uh, me and Donovan didn't look so appetizing anymore at 3,500. I was 3,500. Donovan was 2,500, um, you know, a week. So Noah made, you know, a, a really good business decision and they started cutting me and Donovan and uh, bringing in other talent that was just a lot cheaper. And that trend happened everywhere. When Donovan and I, uh, left Noah. See, what happened was <clears throat> we had a contract with Noah that they would use us 23 weeks a year minimum at those prices. And the last year we worked for Noah, they worked us, I believe it was like 20, 19, 19 weeks. And so they owed us for four weeks. So we assumed they were going to put us on the, the Christmas tour um, because that one is usually a long one. And uh, that's what we assumed. And then when we, we got our, you know, notice that we weren't coming back, we were like, Oh, well, wait a minute. They owe us, you know, four weeks. <clears throat> so we talked to uh, Runagata and he brought us into a meeting with Misawa I could tell that uh, Ryu and Misawa were both pissed. And uh, I just told Misawa, I said, Misawa-san, I said, uh, I have a family that I support. And I said, and we had an agreement. It was a verbal agreement. Because with Noah, everything was verbal. We, we never had any signed contract. Um, it was all verbal. But I just, you know, we talked to Misawa and I said, Misawa-san, I said, we, we had a verbal agreement a contract um, that uh, you would use this 23 weeks a year and you only use this 19. So either please book us on the next tour and give us the 23 weeks that you promised, or please pay us for the weeks that we are not working, you know? And uh, so they basically said that they understood and that yes, there was an agreement, and that they that they had forgotten about that agreement, but that because we'd worked for them for five years now, yeah. and they had forgotten that that was part of the original thing was that it had to be twenty three weeks a year, 
Um, so Misawa basically told Ryu to pay us and, um, you know, that we weren't going to be on that tour, but to pay us anyways. And then Ryu told us, okay, so we will pay you the money, but then we won't book you again if you take the money. And I thought to myself, you're not going to book us again anyways because ROH is coming in and their guys are working for fucking nothing. Like nothing. Dude, in Japan, it costs you $100 a day to eat. It's $30 to go to the freaking 7-Eleven and get some snacks. Like it's ridiculous. You know, so uh, going over there and making $500 to $750 is stupidity you you better be making you know over a thousand dollars minimum and better hope that someone's taking you out for some meals um so that's the way i looked at it i looked at it like well even if you do use us again it's going to be sparingly it's going to be less um we've been here five years you've made it very clear to us that we are not part of this company and that we are a temporary part. And I think our temporary part is over now. And uh, so I took my $8,000 or whatever it was. It was a little over that. Um, I took my money and you know ran. I was like, well, I'd rather have the money um, than promises of whatever. Uh, yeah, when I, when I really realized that we were not a part of the company, was when they put the GHC Junior Heavyweight Championship on me. Isn't that a weird thing? Yeah. So here's what happened. <clears throat> I show up at this arena, and I'm going to be wrestling uh, Kanamaru, and he's the current champion. They're going to put this belt on me, and they come up and tell me. And at first, I'm just like completely honored and blown away. I just can't believe it. Like, really, I'm going to win the belt tonight. That's amazing. So I win the belt. The match was a very good match against Kanemaru. Uh, and then every time I wrestle with that belt, they don't put it on TV and they don't put it in the magazines. All of a sudden, I disappeared off of television and out of the magazines. And I was like, what in the fuck is going on? I just won the belt. Like they, they showed that in the magazines, they showed me winning the belt. But then after that, nothing. <clears throat> I also didn't get to defend the belt. I would come out with the belt. I would be involved in tag matches where I would come out with the belt. I would be involved in six mans where I would come out with the belt, but I didn't get to defend the belt. Um, it was this weird thing that they did. And I started selling less merchandise because no one knew who I was. I mean, this happened for a long period of time. And bands started like coming up to me and going oh you you still wrestle noah and i'd be like yeah motherfucker i'm the champion look jc champ so here's what they do 
they put the they put the belt on you, they hide you on television, they hide you on the magazines so that you don't build a fan base. Yeah. But technically, you are a champion, okay? And technically, when the next Japanese guy beats you, they can say, Oh, Mike Modest was the champion for six months. Mike Modest was the champion for eight months or a year. And and now he's beating him. He beat somebody. So that's that's kind of how they do it. But at the same time, I've got no loyal fans. I've got no fans that that really perceive me as a champion. Because they don't get to see me walk around with the belt. I'm I'm almost I was just like forgotten. So it was like the most bizarre thing that ever happened to me in the business as far as like something where I thought it was going to be good and then it wasn't. I sold less merchandise. I had no TV time. Uh, then I saw they they had this new opener um, for the show, for the Noah show coming on. So me and all the guys, me and all the gaijin, we got real excited, you know, and you're kind of separated from the Japanese talent. The gaijin all stay in one hotel and they say for kayfabe, uh, reasons, but it's also because they think a little less of you in a way. Um, so, but all, all of us gaijin talent, we all, you know, went, went and, you know, we were waiting to see the intro of the show because in the past, what they do is they show all the champions. So I'm expecting to be a part of the show opener. You know, they should have me with the belt because the belt is one of their belts and that's how they open the show. Well, they the new show opener doesn't have my belt. It has the GHC Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Champions. It has the heavyweight tag and the, the single tag or the single heavyweight. Yeah. Uh, but they don't have the single junior represented on the show. They actually didn't even have me in the opener or the belt represented in the opener of the show. And when I saw that, I was so fucking hurt. Um, I was like, wow, that's fucking painful. Like, I get what it feels like to be a second class citizen right now. Mm. And uh, so the next day I went to the, the arena and I asked uh, Yoshinari Ogawa, who was very good friends with Misawa. He's like one of Misawa's young boys on Wave. He was like Misawa's first, like, you know, young, young boy. And uh, so I went up to him and I said, hey, uh, Ogawa-san, I said, I, I watch uh, Noah's show open. And I go, why, why my belt? No, no on TV. And he goes, oh, Hontani? I go, yeah. I go, GHC Junior tag belt is represented. But the single GHC Junior is not represented on the open of the show? That makes no sense because the junior, the, the tag junior is less. It's a less recognized belt. The single, just like the tag champs are never as prestigious as single like the singles champ is the most prestigious and i i ask him i go why why is it not on the show and he goes oh what kind of knife i don't know and i said uh i i think you do know and it's because i'm gaiji 
So they hide me on TV and they hide me in magazines. And that's okay. I understand. I understand Japanese business. Uh, please ask Sacho, please take my belt away, please. So I can sell merchandise and make more money. Um, it, it's hurting my, my money to be hidden on TV. And so Ogawa said, oh, okay, I will ask. So he went and asked Misawa, and then he came back about an hour later, and he said, uh, okay, so next tour, you drop, to, you drop uh, your belt to uh, Sigira-san. And I said, okay, thank you very much. Tomo arigato gozaimasu. And I was just like, man, fuck, get rid of it, because I feel stupid. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I literally told a fan, yeah, I'm the GHC junior champ. And they did not believe me. They thought I was like out of my mind. And, and they went on the website and couldn't find the belt even being on the website. And yet I stole it. I took it from fucking Kanamaru. So like, <laughs> but uh, that's just how they do it. They're, yeah. they're how, how they were doing it at the time. Right. Um, so after you got back from Japan, um, and you know, there is some places here and there to work, but it seems yeah, so basically because because there was tons of talent and no yeah. place to work, everyone was whoring themselves out. Everyone yeah. was like, you know, working for way less money. <clears throat> we had a tryout with uh TNA, yeah, and um this is where I found out that jobber was a bad term uh, after the tryout match, um, which I admit wasn't great. It was, it was all right. Uh, but I, I didn't, I hate those fucking uh, multiple sided rings. You know, like oh, it's not the yeah. four sides. It's, it's like six sides or eight sides, whatever the hell it is. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so I, I wasn't used to working in one of those. And uh so I didn't do too well in the tryout, um, but uh, they still offered us a job, but it was like the money sucked. Like it just sucked. And uh, right away I was like, well, that's not going to work. You know, like that's not really going to support my family, you know? So uh, and yeah, during that conversation, I told, I told, uh, I told Terry, I said, you know, well, you know, Terry, I said, I appreciate the offer. I said, but that's, that's like jobber money, man. I can't, you know, and he goes, uh, hey, we don't, don't really use that term anymore. And I go, what term? And he says, uh, jobber, it's politically incorrect. He goes, I guess it hurts people's feelings. Unbelievable. And I was like, I was like, what the hell am I coming back to? Like, <laughs> I was in Japan where if you mess up, a guy is just going to pop you one, you know, like, um, it was so bizarre. And, uh, then I also had an offer from Mexico for pretty good money, um, to go and do the border patrol gimmick. Um, I called Conan, uh, because I was like, God, where am I going to work? I need to, I need to find a, you know, good company to go to this money from Noah isn't going to last long. And, uh, so I called Conan and he pitched me a deal and it was it was decent money uh especially for mexico 
wasn't near what I was making in Japan, uh, but I could I could have still made it work. Um, the problem was that I was going to have to be away for longer periods of time. Uh, Noah was bringing me in like every month to month and a half. You know, I'd be back at work and then I'd be there for two weeks to five weeks and then I'd be home for another, you know, a few weeks, you know, and then back and forth. Um, so at least I was able to kind of touch a base at home. But uh, Mexico, it was looking more like uh, like two months at a time, you know, before I would be able to come home, you know, and I'd be working like six nights a week kind of thing and uh, getting paid extra if I if I worked on the seventh uh, night. And uh, I just at that point, man, I was kind of like, uh, I don't think this is going to work. You know, like I started there was just not a whole lot of options, you know, definitely wasn't like it was now. Um, independence weren't drawing at that time. Um, you know, a, a good house for an independent company would be 500, you know, now should an independent house, they could draw anywhere from, you know, 500 to 3000, 4,000, you know, depending on who they have on the card and how, how well they promote it and how well they're known. Um, APW, uh, was running the Cow Palace before the whole COVID uh, thing happened. APW was starting to run the Cow Palace. So, I mean, here's a, a little local independent company that doesn't even have television. And yet they're running the Cow Palace and they have a fan base that is familiar with their stars and actually like chanting this guy's name or, you know, uh, reacting to what this guy does or, you know, um, it's a really interesting uh, time to be a professional wrestler right now. Kevin Cross, uh, for example, I, I had a, I had the pleasure of training him a little bit in FSW in, in uh, Las Vegas, which I ended up going to Las Vegas and opening a wrestling school for a period of time uh, there. And um, which I've had uh, a couple of successful wrestling schools now because I was uh, the head trainer at APW um, and that was very successful. Then I went on to do Pro Wrestling Iron, which I owned. That was successful for two years, but I found it difficult to run a company that really wasn't making me a whole lot of money. And yet I had a lot of risk uh, tied into it because I was a homeowner. I had a lot of risk and a lot of liability tied into it. And when I would leave for Japan, um, it was it was not being run right. And, uh, Donovan was also an owner and uh, a friend of mine, Frank Murdoch. So we decided to close the, close it down because it just financially, it wasn't, it wasn't worth keeping going for the risk that it, uh, it could cause all of us. So, uh, closed that and then opened a successful school in uh, Vegas as well. Um, uh, future stars of wrestling. And uh, Kevin Cross um, came came there to train, and um, I had the pleasure of training him a little bit. It's funny because uh, one of the days he was he was um, kind of telling me, you know, he was like, "Well, you know, how do I do this and how do I do that?" And I said, "You know, man, uh, really, you doing monkey flips and shit like that is just silly because you're such a fucking fantastic shooter. You're already a wrestler, um, so it's like." 
most of your training is already done. That's what you're going to be doing. You know, you're going to be incorporating uh, those things into your professional wrestling, you know? And uh, so he was a very easy guy to work with um, because everything I worked with him on was, was basically trying to incorporate uh, what he already could do um, with uh, the, the pro wrestling style, you know? And um, now, even though he got let go by WWE, he's still making a full-time living. Him and, him and Scarlett um, being flown all over the country for spots here and there because they can, they can afford it because they're drawing, you know, uh, huge houses. Yeah. Um, they just got married actually in Alaska. And it, like, what an amazing picturesque wedding um, they had. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's awesome for them. And, you know, it's funny too, with, with WWE, um, how you can release a guy like Kevin Cross, um, is just, that's just stupidity. It is just <laughs> utter effing stupidity or politics. Um, cause again, everybody pushes for their guy, you know, um, I remember, uh, early bef before I had my um, my tryout with Elix Skipper, there they had someone had tried to help me get another tryout, and uh, Jimmy Hart was involved in it. And if I remember right, it was Ed Schumann. It was it was Ed Schumann was trying to get me a, tr a, a tryout with WCW, and Jimmy Hart somehow got mixed up in it. And Jimmy Hart decided that I was going to job for Kid Cash. And I didn't know a whole lot about Kid Cash, uh, but I knew that I wasn't going to go do any tryout where I jobbed because that's not a tryout for me. That's a tryout for Kid Cash. <laughs> so um, yeah. Jimmy Hart called me at my home and Jimmy Hart was telling me, yeah, Kid Cash, blah, 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 blah. It was funny because he was talking business to me, just like he, his managing gimmick, you know, talking a million miles an hour, mouth of the South. And he's like, and, and, and then uh, kid cash will beat you. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll let you go like maybe three minutes, man. But, but, but kid cash has got to go over, you know, cause, cause that's who we're trying to push right now, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to work for me, man. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interested in a tryout where I job like, thanks, but no, thanks. That's not a tryout. And uh, so I, I actually passed on that tryout um, because of, of uh, who I was jobbing to, um, you know, and I don't have a problem jobbing at all. I'll job to anyone. In fact, in FSW, I was the one that suggested that I should job to this midget, uh, little Jimmy and uh, little Jimmy ended up pinning me and beating me. I don't have a problem jobbing to anybody, uh, even a chick. Um, this was all about business. It had nothing to yeah. do with ego. Um, you know, uh, it had nothing to do with ego. I just recognized that if I went there and now I was like a jobber, I was going to be a jobber and that there would be no other, uh, it would be very difficult to pull myself out of that, that role. You take a guy like Crowbar, you know, um, he had a real hard time 
shaking that persona of just being this jobber guy, you know? And then uh, I saw him kind of like do like this little resurgence with AEW, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and he did the job um, there, you know? And I, I just thought, I thought you were supposed to be like a chiropractor or something, bro. What are you doing, like coming back at this point of <laughs> point of things, you know? Um, I I pretty much have stopped wrestling completely uh, because I have a four year old daughter, and I have her on the weekends, um, and there no one can pay me enough to lose a weekend with my daughter. Yeah, you know, that's well i mean they could pay me enough don't get me wrong if someone offered me enough money i would lose the weekend with my daughter and go make the money because i could you know do things for my daughter with it but no but mike modest isn't going to draw that kind of money to Mm. qualify that kind of expense you know um great Kali offered me a job um for his company in india training wrestlers and uh again it's just i i can't i i just don't want to leave my my daughter i don't want to leave my kids um i just i got burnt out on on leaving people when i worked for noah i missed every holiday i missed every birthday um you know that that whole life is really really hard um and i make more money acting um I was, I did a Netflix, um, 13 reasons why I was in, uh, season two episodes, 11 and 12. And I am the arresting officer of, uh, that arrests, uh, Justin Foley at the end of season two. And, uh, I made so much money doing that and no one hit me at all (laughs) and there was no chance of like getting hurt breaking my neck um or anything like that and if i did get hurt they have super like amazing insurance um everything i do as an actor you know it's it's legit They, they have insurance and um i now have uh you know sag sending me things saying hey you know you've got money um, you know, from residuals, I, I don't know what it's from. It might be from the, uh, the wrestling secrets exposed way back in the day. It might be from beyond the mat or 13 reasons why, or some other thing that I did a long time ago. I imagine the check they have for me is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 cents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm not too worried about getting it, but at the same time, it's like, I'd rather work towards that now. And, uh, I have a lot more fun doing it. And, uh, you know, like I said, man, the wrestling, it's just, it's a young, young guys thing. I'd rather, I'd rather leave while I'm, uh, feeling good and looking good, uh, rather than get out there and embarrass myself. I, I see a lot of wrestlers do that. They, mm. uh, they hang on for paydays, you know, and 
Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of cheesy looking like when you see, like, I don't know, man, there's something about, okay. If you see two 23, 25 year olds, you know, play fighting in a ring, um, that's pretty acceptable. When you see, you know, a 55 year old and a, and a 60 year old play fighting in the ring, it's a little nauseating. <laughs> <You know? laughs> good point, very good point. Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity to plug anything uh, that's going on with you, or you know, if any fans out there want to find you on social media, um, the floor is yours. Yeah, man, I, I'm not, I'm not plugging anything. I'm not doing a whole lot right now. Um, I just, I just did a public service announcement for uh, Solano County Behavioral Health, and that actually paid really, really well. I portrayed an out-of-work construction worker uh, who was trying to hide that I was unemployed from my friends and family, and uh, that paid really well. Uh, I did a, a correctional video um, for uh, it's a it's a virtual reality training video for correctional officers, and I got to play a bad guy in the in the prison um, helping to uh, pass drugs and shit. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, that was filmed in an actual prison uh, where they kept us away from, you know, the inmates and stuff. But it was it was a lot of fun to do. Um, I still love wrestling and uh, I still do seminars from time to time. And the seminars pay really well. I, I like doing wrestling seminars. Um, I love passing my knowledge on to people. Um, and if I was going to give any uh, struggling wrestlers out there um, advice, learn how to wrestle, learn your amateur wrestling, like seriously, go on YouTube. They have shitloads of videos on YouTube where you can learn how to amateur wrestle and you can just kind of like emulate that. Like if you're at a place where they're not training you how to wrestle and they're just training you how to do power bombs and choke slams, um, that's not the industry. That's really not the business. You better know how to wrestle because when you're wrestling six, seven nights a week, um, you have, you've got to be able to save your body. You got to know when to take your, your big bumps. You got to pace, you got to stretch those out. Rick Thompson. Uh, I, I love Ricky. I still talk to him, uh, from time to time. He's my wrestling dad. Um, Rick Thompson told me years ago, he said, he said, Mike Modest, let me tell you something, man. You only got so many bumps and all of a sudden one day you're going to take your last bump and you're going to go, ow, that fucking hurt. I think I'm done. And that'll be it. You won't never take one again. And uh, he was right about that, man. You know, and I was smart. I took his advice and I learned how to entertain people without brutalizing my body. Um, in Japan, I found out that smiling is kind of frowned upon by men. It's a sign of weakness in Japanese culture. So a lot of times bosses and men who are above you will not smile around you, will keep a, a, a stoic face. So my first night in Japan, they were interviewing us and asking us all these questions. And I just wanted to go back to the hotel. I was, I was really tired and I wanted to get to the hotel. And uh, 
they were like, okay, you guys are done. And we started leaving. And then they were like, oh, never mind. You're not done. We want you for another half an hour or so. So they brought us into another room and they were like, oh, can you know, you give us some pictures. And I was just kind of like irritated. So I did this like really sarcastic smile. I went like, yeah, I'm so fucking happy to fucking be here. <laughs> and they went, whoa. And the camera started flashing. And I was like, holy shit, that got a big reaction. Just like a big, sarcastic, <laughs> cheesy smile. I was like, man, I'm going to have to figure out a way to use that. So I stole a thing that I saw Shawn Michaels do. Shawn Michaels slammed somebody, hit him with a quick elbow drop, another quick elbow drop. And then he went for the third one, stopped, and he stepped on the guy's stomach and, and like just walked on the guy and then stepped off of him and kind of wiped his hands and then turned around and spit on the guy. And so then I thought, wow, I can do the same thing, elbow, elbow, and then stop, step on his stomach, big cheesy smile. And I started doing that, and they called it the Modesto smile. It became a thing. My, my wrestling character, there's a game called, uh, uh, oh, what's it called, uh, Kings of the Coliseum. And it was like a stand-up video game in Japan. And uh, you had to, it was on PlayStation or Xbox or something like that, but, but it's only in the Japanese like uh, zone. So like, like I didn't yeah. know this, but I guess games and stuff are zoned for different areas. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but the game was really cool. You had to have my card, my, my character card to be able to play my character on the game. You have to put the card in the game to unlock my character. Right. Then if you want to use my finisher, you have to have that card. So it's a card collecting game. You have to buy the cards and then you get the cards and you put them in the game and it unlocks things. Right. And uh, so the company that made it, they gave us some cards and I got to actually go play myself with the game. And I do, I did the Modesto smile. <laughs> like while I was trying to play the game, I was just got my ass kicked because I, I couldn't read any of the instructions. <laughs> so uh i just got my ass kicked and i gave a little kid that was watching me play myself and it was cute because the kid he stood there and he looked at the game and then he looked at me and he looked back at the game looked back at me and he goes that's the side and i was like hi but that's the side and he was like, what? He went, ran and we got his friends, like his brother and his friends. And <laughs> so then I had all these kids watching me play the game. And so I gave them money to play me. And so I wanted to see what I could do, you know, because like yeah. I was just getting my ass kicked. I couldn't do anything. <clears throat> so luckily they, they played me better than I could play myself. <laughs> and they showed me the Modesto smile, which was pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah, man, I got nothing to plug, man. Just, uh, Peace and love. That's cool, bro. Well, uh, Mike Modest, it's time to get to our final segment here of the interview. I really appreciate. Oh, wait a minute. Time. Wait a minute. One more. One more thing. Sure. If you come to Calif if you come to California, come see me. I'm a bartender at the Diggins Bar in Weaverville, California. Definitely will. I I'm planning on getting over there in the next few years. So uh, right on. 
<laughs> Hopefully I'll get to catch up with you there, bro. But uh, the final segment of the interview is called Five Second Frenzy. Five seconds to answer each question. Even if you break the five seconds, it doesn't matter. It's just the name oh, right. that I came up with for this, this segment. But anyway, Mike Modest, who is your favorite wrestler of all time? Roddy Piper. Excellent choice. Uh, if you could pick one person who is your favorite opponent over the years. Chris Daniels. Another good choice. Uh, if you could pick one match, your favorite match that you that you look back on fondly. Donovan Morgan. And I would I would say honestly, XPW. Awesome. Awesome. And, and the, re- uh, the reason why is because um we we really wrestled in that match and we won over a hardcore crowd. They really appreciated it. And XPW ended up putting it on one of their VHSs. Which oh, cool. was which to me was like a nod by Rob Black that, you know, we knew our shit. That's good. Awesome. Uh, Moving away from wrestling, favorite book? Oh, The Stand. Stephen King. I've read a lot of Stephen King. I um, I like, mostly what I read is is horror novels and stuff. Uh, You know, but I've read a little Clive Barker and, and, uh, you know, different people, Peter Straub. Uh, but Stephen King is the man and uh, the stand man. And then I'm thinking of Dreamcatcher because both of those books, I got so caught up in the characters that whenever a character would die, like I, I'd literally start crying and I'd have to fucking put the book down and I'd, I'd be mad at Stephen King. Like no shit. I'd be like, you son of a bitch. You shouldn't have killed that character. I put the book down and, he does a really good job at uh, endearing uh, characters to you and then doing devious, horrible things to them. Right. Awesome stuff, bro. Um, moving forward, favorite TV show? Golly, favorite TV show right now. I can't even, I don't even watch TV. So, because uh, I hate commercials. Um, <laughs> so like TV show, I, I, let me let me go back in time and think of, when I did watch television, my favorite <laughs> show. Oh God. Um, it would probably be some wrestling based TV show, but like I said, I, I really don't watch TV, especially now. I love the way they do TV now. Like I've got prime video, I've got uh shutter and I've got Netflix. So it's like, you know, I, I pay, I pay 30, 40 bucks and I've got it all. I've got everything I, I could possibly want, but there's a lot of shows on AMC that I can't watch now. And, uh, you know, Oh, well, <laughs> walking dead. That would be my favorite one. Walking dead. Excellent choice. That's one of my favorite shows as well. Um, favorite film, favorite film, the shining. Very good choice. Uh, favorite musical artist or band. Well, my favorite song is uh, Dreamweaver by Gary Wright. <laughs> um, favorite band. God, that's so hard. Scorpions, maybe. Nice. Um, yeah, some good choices there, bro. Um, moving away from the arts, favorite food? Favorite food? Mexican. Enchiladas. Excellent. In particular, enchiladas. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love everything, but Mexican food's my favorite. Um, 
as far as like cuisine, mm. but my all time favorite, like one thing food. Like if you said, Mike, you can only eat one thing for the rest of your life. It would be pizza. And I put a lot of thought into this. First of all, I love pizza. I could eat pizza every, every day, every, every week I could have a pizza. Um, but the reason I, I say that if I only had one food, it would be pizza is because you can construct a pizza to be almost any kind of food. Like if you wanted, you could put, uh, you could have a dessert pizza. You could have a steak pizza, like a, a you know, you could do a, a Japanese style pizza. You could even have a sushi style pizza where the, you know, like you could get really inventive with pizza. So it's kind of like pizza would be the, the favorite food by itself, you know, but cuisine, Mexican food. Very nice. I'm starting to get a bit hungry now that you mentioned all that. Um, favorite place to eat on the road? Waffle House. Yeah, the number one answer every single time <laughs> on this and then, show. And then, <laughs> and then Gus, Gusto's in Japan. Excellent. Cool. Um, favorite alcoholic beverage, or if you don't drink, just favorite beverage in general? Uh, I like beer, and I don't like the, the fancy microbrews. I don't like beers that that uh, fill you up. Um, I, I like mm. cheap beers, like like Paps is a good beer. Coors Light. I like I like light drinkable beers. Um, quick story: I went, I, I wrestled in Ireland, and uh, I went to this Irish pub, and this place was like seriously Irish. As I walked up to the pub, you could hear like them stomping and singing these songs where they were all oi oi saying the same shit, and <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty tense when I walked into the place. And my friends, they all went different directions. And I walk up to the bar and the bartender says, uh, what can I get for you? And I said, uh, well, I'll have a Coors Light. And he turns, he turns a whole circle and he looks back at me and he says, what can I get for you? Like, <laughs> like I'm a new customer. And so then I thought, oh, they must not like Coors here. They must be like a Bud Light bar, which I'm such an idiot. I'm in Ireland, right? And I'm, I'm thinking like, typical us guy you know like i'm thinking of the american beers so then i go uh a bud light and he says okay miss nancy he turns around again and he says <laughs> what can i get for you miss nancy and i'm like now i'm perplexed i don't know what the fuck i'm gonna get now luckily one of my friends my irish friends came up and he says uh oh he'll, he'll have a guinness and i said uh oh yeah i guess i'll have a guinness and he goes, there you go. How does that feel? Ordering a man's fucking drink in a man's pub. He goes, that makes you feel good, doesn't it? I was like, no, actually it doesn't. I feel shitty. I feel uh, emasculated right now and slightly <laughs> humiliated. And now I'm going to be drinking the beer I hate the most. Like, I, <laughs> I hate Guinness. It's like, it's like drinking steak, potatoes, and something yeah. else really heavy. You know, it's it. You drink one and you're full. <laughs> That's a good point, bro. I hate it too. Uh, um, okay, second last one here on Five Second Frenzy. A favorite female body part? You see a good-looking lady. What do you, your eyes like to go to first? I'm a face man. Mm. Very if she good. doesn't have a pretty face. I don't want to hear her talk. <laughs> good call bro and, and the last one I'm, oh yes and yes. i'm not one of those guys like like guys who are like oh who cares you know turn the lights off i care because i gotta walk around with her i gotta look at her every day you know <laughs> or at least 
at least sometimes I got to be looking at her, you know, when we're talking. So it's like, um, I want to, I want her to have a pretty face and a nice smile. Very nice. Uh, the last one of five second frenzy is favorite curse word. Oh gosh. Um, honestly, I think cunt is over, uh, underused here in the United States because mm. are so, so offended by it. Yeah. And people are so offended by it. I wish we were a little more like, like England where it wasn't like the worst word in the world, you know, to where you could, you could tell a guy, Hey, you sure are acting like a cunt and it wouldn't be as a big a deal. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's hard to get away from fuck. I guess fuck's probably my favorite word, man. It's just, you know, it's, it's so usable and it's just, it's universal. It, you can change it for all kinds of things, you know? Yeah. Exciting. It can be sad. It can be painful. Yeah. It's very versatile. Very versatile. Yeah. Well, Mike Modest, this has been a joy, an honor, a privilege to have the opportunity to learn about your career, about your time in wrestling. You've told so many great stories. My face hurts. This is what this, my, my podcast is all about. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to learn and to, to hear your stories. And, you know, I, I say it quite often on this show to a lot of the pro wrestlers that I've looked up to over the years, but I live all the way over here in Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city in the world. So you've reached quite far all the way over here to have somebody and, you know, a bunch of my friends appreciate you and everything that you've done That's in so pro cool. wrestling. So. That is very, very cool, and I, I appreciate you very much, Carl. Thank you so much. You're welcome, sir. And uh, thank you all out there for checking out my interview here with the one and only Mike Modest. I'm California. This is the Insider's Edge podcast, and we will see you down the road. Thank you. <laughs>